G'day, mate. 40 here. So I was wide awake by 3.49 a.m. Got up, uh, started blogging. Wanted to work on my blog post about uh, David Samuel's Q&A in Tablet Magazine about Barack Obama with uh, David Garrow, the author of Rising Star, a 2017 biography of Obama. David Garrow also wrote a biography of Martin Luther King. So I was decoding that long essay in Tablet Magazine. Also wanted to work on a blog post on Richard Hananya, who just got exposed in the Huffington Post as having, having written a bunch of edgy alt-right content under a pseudonym. And then as I was you know, working on my computer, I noticed that the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team contest against Sweden was going down into its final minutes in extra time. So I switched over, I watched the final two minutes of extra time, and then watched the, the penalty shootout. First time I've watched live the U.S. Women's World Cup. And I was, I was supporting America, even supporting Megan Rapino. But I admit that when America lost and, and Sweden won in penalty kicks, I was glad because then I reframed things. I was glad because the U.S. Women's National Team was so ridiculous it, in my mind agitating for equal pay when they put out a product that's demonstrably inferior to what the U.S. men's team puts out. So when the U.S. women's national soccer team played a group of 14-year-old boys, right, the U.S. women's female team lost 7-1, to one, right? They are demonstrably inferior to what 14-year-old boys can do, and that's why they get far fewer fans to their contest than the men's team but they had to go and successfully work the civil rights industrial complex to get equal pay for a decidedly inferior product. So I reframed things like, yeah, I'm glad they lost because their civil rights activism was so obnoxious. And I'm glad that Megan Rapino was ridiculous in her penalty kick attempt, just hitting it way over the bar. I was like, good, because I just find her, her civil rights activism particularly obnoxious. So I just reframed everything so that I was happy with the outcome and, that's how I tend to roll, right? Almost everything that happens in life, I tend to try to reframe it as a way, you know, to be happy. And it's kind of a contrast I notice with most people on the distant right. They seem to reframe everything as an excuse to feel hopeless and doomed. So probably most of my friends and most of my acquaintances on the distant right, they just welcome any attempt to feel doomed, whether it's AI or immigration, or Democrats winning elections, or the latest U.S. Census Bureau report, or you know homelessness problems in L.A. and San Francisco, or crime problems, whatever is happening, I notice many people are just emotionally wedded to the narrative that we are doomed. And I notice the same people are not thriving in life, right? I don't know many people, if anyone who's thriving in life with a mindset of we are doomed. I mean, how would the mindset we are doomed, how would that encourage thriving in life? How would that encourage investing in the future, investing in relationships, building community, building anything, if you're absolutely convinced that we are doomed? So the mindset of we are doomed, in my experience, about 90% of the time goes along with an under-earner mindset meaning people who are just determined to hide in the cave. And when you reach out to people who are determined to hide in the cave and try to encourage them to come out into the sunlight, they react like the wounded animals they are. They bite you. So I just noticed that the people with this 
we are doomed mindset, right? They, they will just use any excuse to build on their supposition that we are doomed and they will use any excuse to maintain a small life. So they will protest U.S. demographics, they will protest U.S. civil rights laws, but they will rarely take any concrete action to build a, a sense of community, which they say is so important to them. They want to live in a cohesive, you know, high-trust community, but they don't actually go join one or attempt to build one or support what someone else is doing, even though there are many opportunities to go out there and join communities of like-minded people and uh, participate in a high-trust, high-cohesion community. But any relationship, right, any bonding, any joining, right, always requires some self-sacrifice on your part. And it also requires some vulnerability. So it's like if you have a, a surgery, all right, and the doctor says you need to take it easy for a few weeks and then just gradually build yourself back up, right, many people will take the perspective, or, you know, I'm just doomed for life now. So even though empirically there's no reason why they shouldn't be back at normal function with whatever part had surgery after a year, uh, they will still use the surgery and use the injury as a way to maintain a small life, a defeated life. They will, they will embrace the opportunity to limp through life, to play the part of a victim, to see if they can manipulate other people to do things for them that they're perfectly capable of doing for themselves. So I notice whenever someone asks me to provide them information that they're perfectly capable of finding on themselves through a Google search or a YouTube search, it never ends with that one request. It always goes on and on and on and on. And th there are times, though, when I get humiliated, when I get defeated, when I suffer a setback, when I lose a valuable relationship, where I don't reframe things in the most positive light. So I take time to mourn. You'll see days, weeks uh, on this channel in the past where I've been in quite an insecure, uh, melancholy state, such as I'm thinking just before my trip to Australia in November of 2021. Uh, I was pretty much down. And then I was in such a, a down state, in such a desire to lead a small life that I basically made almost no videos between the summer of 2012 and the fall of 2014. So I think I went over two years with making almost no videos because I just didn't feel strong enough in the quality of my life to be able to face that camera, to, to stand and deliver. Right? It, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and you know, a feeling of strength in my life to be able to stand and share my opinions with the world, to share them with all, you know, three live viewers right now on, on YouTube. And so I am familiar with hiding, right? I have, I have lived much of my life in hiding in many ways, in fear of building community and, and building relationships. So I think I can spot some things in other people I have struggled with. because when you're failing, right, speaking just for me, I am so tempted to reach for conspiracy theories that will, that will strengthen my sense of superiority because I know what's really going on. Like I see through the BS, right? That's the, that's the attraction to conspiracy theories for me to believe that I'm smarter than everyone else. I know how the world really works. And yeah, everyone else is more successful than me in my peer group, but at least I see through the BS. And then also the more I get into conspiracy theories, the more I want to keep my life small because other people think I'm being ridiculous and it becomes a negative cycle where the smaller my life gets, the more necessity I feel for both conspiracy theories and maladaptive forms of attention-seeking. 
So I, I think I talk more on my stream and on my blog about seeking status and seeking a heroic position in life than most people I know. And I don't think that I'm more status-seeking or hero-seeking than other people. I just think I'm more open about what is an essential part of the human condition. And as someone who's been blogging and sharing my broadcasting my short thoughts online since least 1997, right? I look for areas of comparative advantage and I see this is an area of comparative advantage. Okay, I'm willing to sell my soul here to open up and to be vulnerable about things that I don't see many other people doing because I feel like I've got a comparative advantage because I think so few people are open about their, their very strong desire to be a hero, to try to raise themselves in social status and at the same time have to admit that we pretty much all of us do not like status seekers, right? We find them contemptible, and yet the, the very behavior that almost all of us, almost all of the time, find contemptible in other people, right? To be honest, I'm just constantly engaging in myself. Like, I wouldn't be doing this, this show if I didn't think it was heroic, and if I didn't have some sort of sense that, uh, you know, somehow I can raise my social status just by stringing together some powerful shows. I thought the first Trump indictment by Alvin Bragg was ridiculous. And I think this third Trump indictment so far, to the extent I'm knowledgeable about it, also seems ridiculous. While the second Trump indictment about his dealing with classified documents strikes me as strong. So I'm not knee-jerk pro or anti-Donald Trump. I think he's very much a, a flawed man. I think uh, his critics have many legitimate points to make, but uh, Trump prosecuted Jack Smith. So far, I'm not impressed by what he's producing. So far, I agree here with Mickey Kaus's analysis in his conversation with Robert Wright on Friday. Oh, well, there is this Trump indictment, uh, and I, have, I take a hard line on it. As you, uh, we were, Earlier in the week, as it's already sort of old, but not really, uh, a few days ago, Prosecutor Jack Smith indicted Donald Trump on four counts involved in, involving his stop-the-steal efforts. Mm -hmm. for, uh, I have four, five things to say about it. First, there was no really new evidence he dug up. I, mean, I, I was hoping he would. I was hoping he would deliver the goods. I was hoping he would have Trump on tape saying, "I hope those." Right. So I am open to prosecutors making a strong case against Donald Trump, and I believe they did in the second indictment. But so far, to the extent that I am knowledgeable, it does seem to me the first and third indictments are not strong. If the the indictments against Trump are not strong then the easier it is for fair-minded people or people in the middle or even Trump supporters to completely dismiss them as politically motivated, which is not good for America. And I live in America. So is America exceptional? It is to me because I live here. People riot and stop the vote and hang Mike Pence, okay? Didn't have any of that. Now, he could always come up with the goods later. He could always revise his indictment the way he did with Mar-a-Lago, where he had new evidence. So it's always possible he will come up with the evidence, or he could have the evidence and be hiding it so as not to alert Trump's attorneys about it. That's possible. But from the looks of it, there's nothing new here. He doesn't seem to have the goods. And also this whole business that we were hoping about the riots and the, you know, he, he, he was really conspiring with Steve Bannon in the Willard Hotel to have the riots disrupt the Congress. Not, that's, not, that's not even a charge in this, in this indictment. He doesn't really make a big deal well, of the impeding, riots. Impeding the congressional process is a charge, isn't it? Right, but he, right, but that, he, he does that by pressuring Mike Pence, not by... Not by no, I think that's uh, legit. Not by, not, instigating, not by instigating the rioters. Yeah, but well, right? think, that's mentioned. He yeah. mentions that, but the big thing is Pence. He doesn't have any stuff about how he knew that they were going to be violent or, uh, you know, anything damning about that. Does it's he, not a do separate they, charge. Do they mention the famous tweet where Wyatt when Trump they knows the famous, they mention they mention the famous tweet, and it comes off in 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 Jack Smith's retelling, not the way 
you put it. You, you may be right, but another guy whose job I should have, Mickey. This is you, like a you, pervasive problem. The way, the way you put it is, my, they're they're running around the hall saying, "Hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence." Right. Trump sees it on TV and he tweets something like that. Mike Pence is a traitor. He could have done the right thing, thereby putting his uh, to that life effect, in jeopardy. Yeah. Uh, the way he retells it is, Trump doesn't really know. He's he's a, uh, you know, he's um, he he's he's desperate. He's 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 doing one last chance, saying Mike Pence is a traitor. And then a minute later, they break into the Capitol. So uh, it's not quite as bad as. Wait, you they, were in, the, they were in the Capitol when he tweeted that. Well, the one he Smith talks about, he says a minute later they broke into the Capitol. I'm pretty sure. Is there a different anyway, tweet? Anyway, he doesn't. They, I guess I mean, more, more the, other, one tweet. the other thing I'd say is in the speech on the mall, uh, I'm pretty sure Trump says something like, it's all in Mike Pence's hands. If he doesn't do the right thing, we're not going to be happy or something like that. And he already knew what Pence was going to do. So that was like dishonestly right. priming them to get outraged at Pence right. Right. shortly right. So thereafter. Right. And then he so further primed them with that tweet. Right. So you've hit on my second point, which yes. is uh, all, all Smith has basically is Trump lying, 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 lying. He knows he's lying. He's lying, 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 lying. He lobbies Mike Pence. He lobbies the Georgia guy to change the vote. He lobbies the Pennsylvania guy to change the vote. He lobbies the Michigan guy to change the vote. He lobbies the Arizona guy to change the vote. Uh, so he's basically speaking and lobbying, all of which are legitimate First Amendment activities, even if you know it's bullshit. So that's the basic problem with uh, with the indictment is it's, it's all about uh, Trump speaking and lying, okay? He's a liar like speaking if I, and if, if I tell a lie that increases the chance that somebody will be killed, like if I see a drunken husband with a gun and say, I saw your wife fooling around with so-and-so, there are, there and she's inside. Limited. Okay, so the news media and our elite pushing the lie that American police are systemically racist, that America is systemically racist, all right? To the extent that the news media and our elites have been pushing the idea that America is systemically racist, holding back black people, they are promoting a lie and an anger and a rage that has murdered thousands and thousands of people. So where, where's the accountability for those lies? That's the there, First there Amendment few, protection? There are, few, there are a few limited, very narrowly drawn well, I wouldn't call this Trump case limited. I'd call it clear-cut. He's trying to impede the congressional process. He is, I take your he, silence he is, as concession. I thank you for your gracious. He's president. He's president. He's allowed to try to impede the congressional Wait, process. He doesn't like the congressional process. First Amendment he thinks protection? he was ripped off. No, he, he, I, I, as, as, well, I, think, I, think, I actually think he does get extra protection for doing things that, as president, he's legitimately allowed to do, like lobby state officials. He thinks the election was stolen. He's lobbying state officials. We, we don't want we don't want, the, we don't want people to come in and say, "Okay, Stacey Abrams, you you think your election was stolen? We think you're a liar. Go to jail." We just don't want the prosecutors coming in and criminalizing ordinary, pathetic, lying speech activities. Forty uh, percent of campaigns are fraudulent conspiracies. Are conspiracies to commit fraud? You think JFK thought Kimoy and Matsu were the most important issues in the world? No. I mean, they constantly, that wasn't in the service are, of committing what would with, otherwise be considered a crime. Well, let the, me say uh, this about the indictment broadly, okay? I, don't, I, I honestly don't know whether, legally speaking, he has a case. And as you know, I think the indictments are all a bad idea. It's, a, it's banana republic to be indicting the president. And although Democrats are extremely slow to pick up on the following fact, it helps Trump politically. Uh, well, Biden likes it. It helps Trump. It helps Trump. You know, it helps Trump win the primary, and Biden thinks he can— Win the with the general well, election the by replicating. This week's New York Times poll has them tied 43-43, Biden Trump. But I know, I know. But Biden, Biden has to have a strategy by which he can beat Trump, and that is to uh, replicate 2022 when he scared people about the John Meacham threat to democracy, and people were a little scared. Mm -hmm. And he can certainly do that again on the basis of, uh, of you know, Trump's actions with the stop the steal. He's not like he actually, he's not like he's regretted it and apologized to the American people. So um, uh, he has to have a strategy. That I think seems to be his strategy. In any case, he's stuck with it because the indictment now has polarized the electorate so much that that's the only, his only strategy really that's available uh, or the best I mean, strategy that's available. Let me, so, let me, but basically, I think it has a chilling effect, not just on future people who might contest elections like Stacey. Let me finish this, Bob. Oh, this is ridiculous. Who might, who might 
want to contest elections, but also want people like scientists who might want to lie about the origins of COVID in order to stop a government function. If you read the law, that's what Jack Smith is. So Robert Wright is just continually interrupting Mickey Kaus. This has been my objection for years to this show. It's just incredibly obnoxious. But as this has been going on for years, I have to give Mickey Kaus the blame here because he has not sufficiently stood up to Robert Wright and let him know that uh, continually interrupting him when he's you know, in, in a flow of making points is not on. Is claiming it's a terrible indictment, it's unconstitutional, and I hope it's thrown out by an appellate court before it ever gets to trial, and I think it should be. Okay. Lie about COVID to stop a government function? Is there, is there a particular official who actually would be liable under this reading, like Fauci? Are you thinking of somebody well, in particular? Fauci would be a logical. No, it doesn't just apply to officials. It applies to any citizen. It could be the scientists. Fauci... It could be the scientists who were caught. So you can show... Slack. They didn't believe what, 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 what they were saying about COVID origins. They were participating in a fraud, did a fraud to, to fool the public into thinking there was no oh, lab leak. That's a great point there by Mickey Kaus that I would not have thought of. And to wait, get wait, the government wait, wait. to do something, okay? Wait, wait, wait. I'm wait, sorry, Smith. Wait, wait. The fraud thing is a separate indictment from the impeding congressional proceedings thing. Those are different things. Are you, you know, are you saying that Fauci impeded some government function that would leave him liable under the same law that Trump is being impeached, is being indicted under? Well, well, I think the fraud has to be in, in the aim of impeding a government fraud. function. I'm not talking about fraud. I'm talking about impeding the yeah, but he Congress's... charged him with fraud. I'm saying, I'm saying Smith could charge Fauci with the same thing he charged Trump with. He, Trump, he charged Trump with fraud. So you're saying, you oh, but there's another charge. Yes. I'm not talking about the other charge. So you're conceding Trump charges, is liable. Fraud. All I'm talking about is the impeding of congressional proceedings. Are you conceding Trump is should be indicted on legal grounds for that? That's all I'm talking about. No. The fraud thing has all kinds unless, of other problems not unless, with Jack Smith, not unless Jack Smith has more evidence than he has now uh, that, that, you know, Trump. I think, I think this, the threat to legitimate political activity, and William Barr worried about this. It's not like I'm alone, okay? This is the attorney general who hates Trump, thinks the prosecution should be bought, brought, said there was a slippery slope toward chilling legitimate yeah. political activity. I think the way you stop the slippery slope is you require there to be sub-thuggish act like a bribery, physical intimidation, telling Raffensperger, I know where you live, something, something that implies the, the courts could say, okay, this is, you know, this is thuggishness, it's not just speech. And he came close with that with Raffensperger. He said, you know, you might be subject to criminal prosecution later, okay? Yeah. So that's, that's a borderline one. That's the best he's got, I think. But I think there has to be some, some mafia-like well, anyway, uh, defending... you know, perjury or, or physical threats or intimidation or bribery. And you could say, okay, now he's crossed the line. Let me just say again, I'm not defending the fraud count, which has other problems. And I don't even know enough about the law to full-throatedly defend the impeding congressional proceedings thing. Although from everything I've heard, including everything you said, it seems, it seems uh, solid to me. Again, I wish he weren't being indicted because it just has bad consequences. That kind of depresses me that I'm living in a country where that's happening. But it equally depresses me that whatever the legalism of the thing, the fact is Trump does deserve to go to jail because he did try to subvert the U.S. Constitution and overthrow an election. Do you deny that leaving legalisms aside, he tried to subvert the U.S. Constitution? Yes. You deny that. You don't, you deny no, I, that. I agree. I agree. Okay. Yes, Good. I agree. Um, so so we can is, move on. The question is, does that fit? He could, should clearly be impeached for it. The question is, does that fit any existing right. criminal statute? I don't know enough about the law to say that okay. the, the impeding the congressional proceeding thing still seems kind of solid to me. Again, I'm just depressed about the whole Okay, I think uh, Mickey Counts was uh, learning some good points there. All right, uh, Huffington Post exposes Richard Hananya, rising right-wing star, wrote for white supremacist sites under a pseudonym. So I don't know how Richard Hananya can emerge unscathed from this, but he does seem to be made of tough stuff. I expect that he'll just keep going the best he can with less uh, public reach. Richard Hananya is one of my 10 favorite public intellectuals, along with Christopher Cordwell, Steve Saylor, Nathan Kaufness, uh, Ronnie Goodman, and Charles Murray. So I identify with Richard Hananya having a great desire to say exactly what he wants to say. And I also identify with Richard Hananya's desire for social acceptance, right? 
these are both strong desires and one is easy to meet and one is difficult right saying exactly what you want to say is easy right that's like playing tennis with the net down it's like writing free verse as opposed to poetry that scans now saying what you think in terms that are most likely to get your ideas a fair hearing from a broad public is difficult and Steve Saylor and Charles Murray are about as good at this as anyone I know when it comes to controversial ideas. So Richard Ananya tried to have the best of both worlds. He presented a moderate front publicly, and then he did all this alt-right stuff under a pseudonym. So generally speaking, for the individual, right, trying to phrase things so that they have the best chance of achieving social acceptance or at least a decent social hearing and provide the least ammunition to your enemies to destroy your life. That's the best way for most of us to operate most of the time, right? So if you have a strong in-group identity, enjoy it. Uh, feel free to unburden yourself to your in-group if that's a safe place. But you should also take time intermittently to consider how your words and deeds might be perceived by those outside of your group. So enjoy the in-group and also step outside of yourself occasionally. Think about how what you're saying and doing could be considered by people on the outside. Now, there is a through line in pretty much all of uh, Richard Ananya's work, and uh, th that's the smirk, all right? I think Richard Ananya and I just, uh, we, we tend to broadcast with a smirk. And so I assume that's what, under, underneath that smirk is that both of us feel pretty cocky about what we're saying. Right. Who decodes the decoders? Now we have at least one answer. Yes, I do. <laughs> Luke does see through the BS. He has only a few blind spots, says Art Bell. Oh, thank you. I'm sure I have, have many blind spots. I do the best I can. Decoding powers activate. Blessings and guessings. The chat is ready to decode. Okay, so this smirk. All right, I wonder if Richard Hanania... It's going to be have to keep up this smirk after this extensive Huffington Post takedown. So from his pseudonymous work to his upfront work, you know, Richard Ananya is a smarty pants, you know, attention-seeking, equal opportunity provocateur who reminds me a great deal of myself. Now, one problem with our approach is that you incentivize people to take you down and also you minimize your audience because many people don't like a smirker. I also wonder if Richard Hanania is neurotypical. Now, I wonder about the quality of his relationships when he was writing under the Richard Host persona. So this is the advice that I try to follow when I'm operating in public, whether it's on a live stream, on a blog, or just in public in general. Right? Always assume that five people are watching, your best friend, your worst enemy, your boss, your mother, and a lawyer. Right? So I try to create from the persona who only thinks about what I think, but then I usually strive to broadcast my thoughts with my most important relationships in mind. So it's a lot easier to say what you think when you don't value your relationships and your community. My sneaking suspicion is that uh, Richard Hanania, like myself, has consistently chosen his free expression over the quality of his relationships. So I've had various girlfriends who try to put limits on what I wanted to say uh, on my blog, and I did not take that well. Uh, another point I think that's applicable to this Richard Hanania situation is even if his writing for these alt-right websites was impeccable, you're going to be judged by the company you keep, even if your own conduct is exemplary. 
Uh, it also sounds like Richard fell into some unforced errors because he's writing under a pseudonym. People tend to get sloppy. So Richard Ananya talked about some races are better than others. It's normal and natural to think of your own race, your own people, your own group as best. It is really wise to broadcast this thought. Now, I notice many right-wingers such as Scott Greer on Twitter protesting this Richard Hananya doxing. I think that's a misuse and abuse of the term doxing. So I understand doxing as publishing somebody's home address or you know, someone's private work information. Right. Richard Ananya was publishing his thoughts in public under a pseudonym to presumably hundreds of thousands of people. There's no moral obligation to protect Richard Ananya's pseudonym. Right. Richard Ananya has chosen to play in the big leagues, and this kind of investigation seems to me is completely fair game. They don't out his home address. Now, identify with Richard Ananya in that he seems to me to be a bloke like me striving for the heroic. Right? Not something you're supposed to admit publicly, but we do. And so the whole idea of a hero system is something that I first found out about in Ernest Becker's classic 1973 book, The Denial of Death. So the community you live in, our society, is itself a codified hero system. Right? Society everywhere is a living myth of the significance of human life. It's a defiant creation of meaning. And most of us get our hero system from our community. It's not something that we just come up with internally. So pretty much every man of spirit. Children. And yet, as we grow up, we tend to be ignorant of what we really want and really need. And that is to feel heroic. Right. So as we get older, the heroic may seem too big for us on a conscious level. but on a non-conscious level, we're still striving for it. Now, we disguise our struggle by piling up figures in a bank book to reflect privately our sense of heroic worth or by having just a slightly better home than the average in our neighborhood or a bigger car or brighter, more accomplished children. But underneath all this throbs this yearning for cosmic specialness, no matter how we try to mask it. Now, occasionally someone will publicly admit that he takes his heroism seriously which gives most of us a chill. We kind of shudder at the crassness of earthly heroism. But the urge to be heroic is natural and normal. And maybe, maybe we should be more honest about it. So we usually get our hero system from our community. But if we are blessed with special powers, special abilities, such as art or architecture or athletic accomplishment, right, we yearn to create something that will outlast us, right? That will outshine death and decay that says, you know, my life counts. And I think this is exactly what Richard Ananya was trying to do through both his writing and vlogging under his own name, as well as his pseudonymous work. And you see it in a lot of people, right? Particularly those who don't have the, the strongest relationships and connection with reality, that in, and I've, I've done this myself, in my striving to be a hero, I frequently alienated myself from everyone around me. Like I, when I went into writing on the pornography industry and exposing an HIV outbreak and the probable origins of the outbreak and the role of organized crime in the industry, I thought I was, I was being a hero, right? But for most normal people in my life, they were just appalled. Right? He thought this he is, saw wrongdoing on Wall Street. It took over his life. 
Years ago, Peter Clothier thought proxy firms were counting shareholder votes incorrectly. His life fell apart after he reported it. By Justin Baer, photographs by Jose A. Alvarado Jr. for the Wall Street Journal. August 6, 2023, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Peter Clothier checked into a Santa Fe, New Mexico, hotel in 2017, alone and suicidal. Drunk on red wine, uninterested in the opera festival he had come to attend, Clothier fumed. For years he had been trying to call attention to what he believed was wrongdoing in his corner of Wall Street. He felt unheard by his former employer and the government. Clothier emailed a former colleague, saying he intended to kill himself and laying the blame on other former co-workers. He didn't follow through, but one thing was clear, Clothier's life was falling apart. Whistleblowers sometimes win widespread acclaim, as when an Enron employee appeared on the cover of Time or when Russell Crowe starred in a movie about a former big tobacco executive. The U.S. government believes in rewarding tipsters who call attention to misbehavior. This year, the Securities and Exchange Commission issued its biggest ever whistleblower award for $279 million. But most whistleblowers don't become rich or famous. Many destroy their relationships, lose their jobs, turn disillusioned when their big revelations are greeted with ambivalence. Since the SEC launched its whistleblower program more than a decade ago, the agency has received more than 64,000 tips. By late 2022, 328 of those whistleblowers had received financial awards. It's all the things we believe or hope are true as children, that eventually the rightness of what they say will be recognized, said C. Fred Alford, a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland, who wrote a book about whistleblowers. When that doesn't happen, or even when it does, the whistleblowing becomes their world. That is what happened to Peter Clothier. Clothier worked in a humdrum part of finance, managing proxy votes for mutual funds run by some of the world's biggest money managers. He started in the business in 1992 when he was in his mid-20s and joined a Okay, so he tried to be a hero and ended up blowing his own life. So many people take on a heroic role and find that they can't really live up to it. Okay, so Richard Hanania has now posted a response on Substack. But first of all, let me get to the Huffington Post article that uh, came out on Friday. Richard Hanania, rising right-wing star, wrote for his white supremacist sites under a pseudonym. Richard Hanania is championed by tech moguls and a U.S. senator. The Huffington Post founder used a pen name to become a more important figure in the alt-right. So a prominent conservative writer, lionized by Silicon Valley billionaires and a U.S. senator, used a pen name for years to write for white supremacist publications and was a formative voice during the rise of the racist alt-right. Richard Hanania, a visiting scholar at the University of Texas, used the pen name Richard Host in the early 2010s to write articles where he identified himself as a race realist. He expressed support for eugenics and the forced sterilization of low IQ people, who he argued were most often black. Now, that's a matter of fact. So either he's factually correct or he's factually incorrect. He opposed miscegenation and race mixing. And while arguing that black people cannot govern themselves, he cited the neo-Nazi author of the Turner Diaries, the infamous novel that celebrates a future race war. Okay, so just because he cited uh, William Pierce doesn't mean that he endorsed you know, everything that William Pierce said. Decade later, writing under his real name, Richard Hanania has ensconced himself in the national mainstream media, writing op-eds in the country's biggest newspapers, bending the ears of some of the world's wealthiest men, lecturing at prestigious universities, all while keeping his past white supremacist writings under wraps. Yeah, well, most of us try to 
put forward a public presentation of ourselves that we believe aligns with our best interest. So the 37-year-old Richard Anani has been published by the New York Times and the Washington Post. He delivered a lecture to the Yale Federalist Society. He was interviewed by Harvard College Economics Review. He appeared twice on Tucker Carlson Tonight, and he was a recent guest on a podcast hosted by the CEO of Substack, where Hanani has nearly 20,000 subscribers. Hanani has his own podcast, too, where he's interviewed the likes of Steven Pinker, famous Harvard cognitive psychologist, Mark Andreessen, the billionaire software engineer, Another billionaire, Elon Musk, reads Ananya's articles and replies approvingly to his tweets. Third billionaire, Peter Thiel, provided a blurb to promote Richard Ananya's books, The Origins of Woke. And in October, Richard Ananya is scheduled to deliver a lecture at Stanford. Rich benefactors have funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars into a think tank run by Ananya, which doles out cash to conservative academics and produces political studies that are cited across right-wing media. Although he has moderated his words to some extent, Richard Hanania still makes explicitly racist statements under his real name, maintains a creepy obsession with so-called race science, arguing that black people are inherently more prone to violent crime than white people. Okay, so I've noticed that whenever someone is accused in the press of being obsessive, that simply means that uh, the person is paying more attention to something than the writer believes is cool. And if the writer had a more profound and devastating attack to make on the person, he'd make it, but because he doesn't, he you know, he falls back on a cheap shot like a creepy obsessive. Uh, Richard Nanya often writes in support of a well-known racist and a Holocaust denier. Who's that? And he once said, if he owned Twitter, he wouldn't let feminist, trans activists, or socialists post that. Why would I? They're wrong about everything and bad for society. So starting in 2008, the byline Richard Host began to appear atop articles in America's most vile publications. Right, everyone's got a hero system. So for the hero system of the author of this piece, right, these are vile publications. For people with a different hero system, these are stellar publications. Richard Host wrote for anti-Semitic outlets like the Occidental Observer, a site that once argued that Jews are trying to exterminate white Americans. Okay, I don't think that's the overall thrust of the Occidental Observer. He wrote for Countercurrents, which advocates for creating a whites-only ethno-state. Well, plenty of Jews advocate for creating a Jewish-only ethno-state. Tacky's Mag, a far-right hub for paleoconservatives, and VDARE, a racist anti-immigrant blog. So in 2010, he was among the first writers to be recruited for Alternative Right, new webzine spearheaded and edited by Richard Spencer. Spencer bestowed Hearst with the honor of writing one of the introductory articles for the launch of AlternativeWrite.com. Uh, really, is that some kind of great honor? I think Hearst uh, probably produced content that uh, was, was convenient for Richard to, to uh, publish. Hearst wrote in a 2010 essay, Why an Alternative Right is Necessary. We've known for a while through neuroscience and cross-adoption studies that individuals differ in their inherent capabilities. The races do too. Well, he says, with whites and Asians on the top and blacks at the bottom, well, it depends on which capability. So that's an own goal. Right? He didn't need to, to phrase things that way. He could have just stuck to the science. Instead, he went you know, for something that was crowd-pleasing, but not true and obnoxious, unnecessarily obnoxious. He lamented that Republicans hadn't done enough to stop Democrats' march of diversity, despite irrefutable evidence that some races are better than others. All right, another own goal. 
right? There's absolutely no need for the most realistic person to say that some races are better than others. Yeah, totally normal and natural to think that your group is better than everyone else, but it's an own goal to broadcast that publicly. Obviously, different peoples have uh, different gifts. In the news, says the chat, Americans now owe $1 trillion in credit card debt. Luke might decode the no agenda show. Tough, they are snarky at worst and easy to debunk as the news is fake, guys. We're irritating at times. That's Infinite Plane Radio, says Art Bell. So Richard Host had his own Discus account to interact with his readers. In 2012, Discus suffered a data breach. So everything you do affects other people. The, the more you can conform your life to what you want your, your public image to be, generally speaking, the happier and more effective you'll be. So the more you're trying to hide and silo off vast sections of your life, generally speaking, the less happy and less effective you will be. So Richard Host frequently used sock puppet accounts hiding behind more fake names to comment on the site. So this writing was done when he was at the University of Colorado as a linguistics student and when he was at University of Chicago where he studied law. And he was the founder and editor of a blog called HBD Books, Human Biodiversity. He wrote about his personal life on HBD Books, explaining that he dropped out of high school, got his GED, attended community college, was eventually accepted to a flagship state university before getting into an elite college for postgraduate studies. All of this biographical information aligns with Hanania's own. So, yeah, if you're trying to hide your identity, probably not a great idea to write about your personal life with this kind of specificity. Another point of overlap between Host and Hananya's life can be found when he wrote about his first jobs. Uh, Host sometimes expressed disgust with fat women. Okay, so women often feel disgust with weak men or short men. Uh, what's so awful about a, a man feeling disgust with fat women? So Host said, fat people not only are disgusting to look at, their obesity reflects some ugly personality traits, and I'm sure sometimes that's accurate, and sometimes it's not. Uh, Host argued that large-scale female involvement in politics is a bad thing. I think that's a pretty normal right-wing reaction. Women simply didn't evolve to be the decision-makers in society, he wrote, adding that women's liberation equals the end of human civilization. Right, that's a dramatic overstatement. Right, uh, we've got women's liberation in the Western world for 50 plus years now. Uh, it hasn't meant the end of Western civilization. We read an article called The White Goddess, first published at the Occidental Observer about Sarah Palin, praising Sarah Palin. She's a Rorschach test for Americans, the attractive, the religious, and the fertile white women have driven the ugly, the secular, and the barren white self-hating and Jewish elite mad well before there are any questions about her qualifications. He wanted to root for Sarah Palin just so I could watch liberals' heads explode. So Richard Host wrote about a white awakening, referring to a realization by whites en masse that they are superior to non-whites. Okay, you don't need to feel superior to have an in-group identity. All right, just wanting your environment to be optimal for your thriving and your family's thriving and your in-groups thriving, right? That's enough to uh, seek your in-group's best interests. 
right? So feeling a strong in-group identity does not require intellectual arguments about how your in-group is superior to others, though it's a natural predisposition of the mind. Once you discover your in-group and glory in your in-group, you will naturally start to look for reasons why your in-group is superior to others. So I'll catch my breath here, play a little bit more from Robert Wright and Mickey House. The whole spectacle, and, and uh, certainly including yeah, he, Trump. He, he, um, I think it's a disaster because uh, unless it's thrown out quickly by an appellate court on some sort of summary judgment motion or something like that, it's, uh, it's going to, you know, he's going to be convicted by the D.C. jury. Mm-hmm. It's going to completely polarize the, the country. Uh, then it will probably be thrown out on appeal, which will further polarize the country. And the, and the left will be pissed off and claim that the right controls the Supreme Court. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it commits Biden, whether he likes it or not, to a strategy of, you know, running against the demon Trump. because Trump's now going to get the nomination. It's a disaster all around and it shouldn't have been brought. Well, and, and I again, I, 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 from what I know, the fraud thing is dubious. The fraud count is dubious. The, the other one, I'm, I'm not sure about. Let, let me ask you a question. The, um, do you think there's a chance? Uh, this definitely doesn't hurt Trump in the primary. Do you think there's a chance that it does hurt him in the general? There's a chance that it hurts him in the primary. They, they, they're, they're, there was a poll today showing if he is convicted, 45% of Republicans would hold that against him. Now, does that mean they really vote against him? I don't know. But uh, it, it's not nothing. Is and it going to come to trial? He's falling, he's, he's falling a little bit in Iowa. He's only ahead by 24 points over DeSantis, who's back up a little bit. Um, it's... Uh, Sorry, I don't think we know yet when it's going to come to trial. What people seem to feel that Smith is trying to get it in before the election. It's certainly the most important of the cases. So but they should be appealed. And he is, is, so he'll still run. He won't be in jail. It'll be on appeal, right? I mean, it's just not going to run if even, if, even if he's in jail. Okay, so Richard Hananya has now responded on Substack. Seems like a pretty reasonable defense. He says it's been revealed over a decade ago. I held many beliefs that I now find repulsive. My post in my early 20s, encouraged racism, misogyny, misanthropy, trolling, and bad faith. Phrases like racism and misogyny get thrown around too easily. But I don't believe there's any doubt many of my previous comments crossed the line. This is why I read such things, why I no longer hold such views. Hananya says, my initial instinct was to ignore the story or denounce the source and its methods. The journalist behind the piece is a supporter of Antifa. That doesn't matter, right? This is a very solid piece of journalism. It's a very solid piece of writing, right? Uh, before publishing his article, he reached out to everyone he could think of to try and get them to cut ties with me. Well, he, he did what a normal journalist would do, right? This is a normal work of reporting. And so to try to, you know, attack the journalist as a supporter of Antifa is silly. It's now leading a mob on Twitter and telling people to watch for the fallout while tagging those in a position to hurt my career. Well, the bigger the fallout, then the more powerful he will feel. Yeah, the guy's just following out his own hero system. So even five years ago, the media could set the narrative, tell people what was important, how they should react to any particular story. Well, None of us, not even the media, get to control what goes on in your head. And so my reputation resides in your head. I don't own it. And so the media can try to set a narrative, but frequently people don't agree with the media narrative, or you would never get a Republican elected president. Richard Nixon was elected twice, even though the media tried to set a narrative that he was not worthy of being president. Ronald Reagan was elected twice president of the United States, even though the dominant media narrative was that he was not worthy to be president. George W. Bush was elected president of the United States twice, even though the dominant media and elite narrative was that he was unworthy of the position. So there's never been a time where the media and the elites can just unilaterally set a narrative 
for everyone because narratives and reputations reside in our heads. And if the media and the elite are telling us something that we don't believe, right, they're not going to be able to brutalize us into accepting it in our heart of hearts. Now, we may stay quiet if that is to our advantage, but it doesn't mean that we you know, give in to this propaganda. Right? Nazi propaganda didn't change many minds. Uh, Maoist communist propaganda didn't change the minds of many Chinese. Soviet propaganda didn't change the minds of many Soviets. Right? It simply supports those who are already predisposed to believe something. But uh, media narratives, elite talking points don't change many minds. And so Hanani is kind of whining here. The goal of the media is not to engage with ideas, but to silence a person and remove them from polite company. Well, every living thing is trying to make their environment the best for their way of life. And that's true for people on the left, and that's true for people on the right. So it's, it's pointless to get, to get angry when people simply try to create the best way of life for them and for their in-group. Uh, having the post asked me to comment, and practically every question was along the lines of, does your previous employer know? How about your academic affiliations? It's not about informing the reader, trying to bring understanding. This is a journalistic endeavor around the goal of unpersoning. Uh, you don't need to complain about this. This is just how the world works. says, I think I owe my readers an explanation of how I came to the positions that I once held and why I find many of them so repugnant. And Richard Hanania says, this is why a large portion of my current work involves attacking right-wing collectivism and illiberal beliefs. Part of it is self-loathing towards my previous life. I too clearly notice the kind of sloppy thinking, emotional immaturity, moral shortcomings that can lead one to adopt the quasi-fascist ideology I am hard on others because I'm hard on myself for once hoarding such views. And then he tries to reconstruct his emotional status and reasoning from 12 to 15 years ago. He wanted to adopt a contrarian posture, the opposite of his political enemy. So if liberals lied about race, I needed to speak harsh truths. If they denied the overwhelming evidence in favor of heredity, I needed to be a caricature of a genetic determinist. And he admits that my thinking was not purely the result of dispassionate analysis. I wasn't the greatest at that time forming normal and healthy relationships with other people. Yeah, I think this is key. Around 2008, I had few friends or romantic successes and no real career prospects. This led me to look around, come to the only logical conclusion was that I was naturally superior to everyone else and women in particular shouldn't have any rights. Strangely enough, now that I have a fulfilling personal life and objective career success, such ideas don't appeal to me anymore. Yeah. So when you're burning up inside, when you feel like your life has gone up in flames, right, it's a normal, natural human desire to you know, burn up everything around you. So that, this rings true, right? So one reason I like Richard Ananya's writing consistently is that it rings true and he does seem to be coming from an honest place. He's argued against anonymity in writing about political and social issues. This was a veiled form of self-criticism. Well, some people can handle anonymity and some people can't. Right? Those, generally speaking, with a family, with connections, with bonds, with, with community, with, with friends, right, usually make better decisions on these matters than those who are as isolated as Richard Hanania. When I was writing anonymously, there was no connection between the flesh and blood human beings 
than I'd see in public and the internet personality who just grew more rabid over time, secure in his belief that nothing but the lols mattered because the internet was a place where we just went to have fun. Yeah, so he developed the, the dangerous personality that often comes along with the e-personality, right? He succumbed to audience capture. He started writing things that would get him applause in alt-right circles, and this was directly contrary to his own best interests. Then, as he became more successful, he sought to align himself with more conventional points of view. He became convinced that liberalism worked. Stephen Pinker's books the last decade, he believes, are irrefutable on this point. So yeah, the more your life works, the more invested you'll be in the current order. So prior to 2016, particularly between 2012 and 2016, my life wasn't working very well. And so I was much more amenable to revolutionary perspectives. After 2016, my life started working well, and I became more invested in the status quo. talks about how Brian Kaplan and Alex Nauresta have argued that even if groups differ in skills or cognitive abilities, we can still benefit from the division of labor. Uh, one of the most dishonest parts of the Washington Huffington Post hit piece is the argument I maintain a creepy obsession with so-called race science. And then you say, I do no such thing. We need simply to come down hard on crime. I believe that. The reason I'm the target of a cancellation effort is because left-wing journalists dislike anyone acknowledging statistical differences between races and also someone who has as much success and influence as Richard Hananya does. One of my most popular pieces is about how women negatively influence the ability of institutions to maintain cultures of free speech. The influence of women on politics isn't an unalloyed good. And uh, he says, though, he got carried away. I know that many will troll me and say, someone just told me the media is honest and good, which is a Richard Hanania essay from about six months ago. And he says it's still true. The media does some bad things, but there are many good journalists out there doing valuable work. Since I sucked so much a decade ago, it's fair to ask whether I still suck today. Right? In certain ways, Yes. I have the least empathy in situations where I should probably have the most. Something I need to work on growing older is a process of trying to suck less and less over time. And he says I'm making progress on that score. Okay. Uh, heartfelt and reasonable response by Richard Hanani. That would There's be no interesting. Way. There's no way he doesn't run. Um, uh, so uh, didn't Mayor Curley in Boston get elected from jail? I think he did. Uh, uh, so me, it, it, it's a disaster all around. I did think of a way, by the way, that this could hurt Trump more than I had realized politically, which is just that, um, you know, it's a pretty, there are a lot of Republicans who think this was definitely a fraudulent election. And one thing about this case is that I think, you know, they're going to see a lot of debate about like, did Trump know that his charges about the election were false? And I think this is going to be on all networks, including Fox. And the clear premise is going to be that, that the, the charges of electoral fraud were false. Now we're just trying to decide whether Trump knew they were false. You will even hear, you know, advocates for Trump, supporters of Trump saying, well, he didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't know. I mean, apparently the indictment uh, provides a lot of evidence that he should have suspected. So uh, Luke Croft says, Forty's view that propaganda does not work is one of the few issues where he is absolutely wrong. Autistic Merrick responds, the power of propaganda is vastly overrated and overstated is what Ford has said. 
Luke says this must be why billions of dollars are spent for propaganda at presidential elections. So if you spend a billion dollars and you shift the vote 0.2%, right, uh, that may be money worth spending. And my point would still stand that spending a billion dollars to shift the vote 0.2% is not much of a return that very, very, very few minds are changed by propaganda. So if the number of minds that are changed by propaganda is less than 1%, then I feel like my, my point stands. If 10% of minds are changed by propaganda, then my point stands. Also, you are providing solace and strength for people who hold the point of view that you're pushing with your propaganda, and you may encourage them to participate more in the political process. So that's another reason for so much. Propaganda is just to give more support and more positive emotions for whatever side you are waging war for. The fraud charges were bullshit, right? So, so, so far, uh, the polls have gone in the opposite direction. There was a poll just this morning <laughs> saying the net effect of the indictment was to increase by about 10%, I think, the percentage of Republicans who think the election was stolen. Well, that's now about 70%. So they got to get back, on your theory, they have to, the trial has to get back that 10% and then make more ground. Uh, I well, don't not just think the trial, do that. But, yeah. but the whole discussion about the thing, which has a long way to go. This is going to be the on other, the airwaves for a long time. The other thing is, uh, Keep, there are people I know who are smart people who would be perfectly who would understand that distinction you're making between everybody agrees it's false. The question is, did Trump know it was false? Uh, who actually think there was where well, there were shenanigans and there were you know there were there, there were rational reasons to suspect there might be shenanigans since the left thought this man was Hitler and had to be stopped. Uh, it turns out there's no evidence of shenanigans, but there are reasonable people who 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 seem to persist in this belief. So uh, I'm not sure a trial is going to convince. I wait their evidence. Certainly, uh, most of the evidence being cited was bullshit. You know, the stuff about uh, whatever State Farm Arena in Georgia. It's, it's all it's all going to come out in Arizona once Kerry Lake wins her lawsuit. Bob. <laughs> oh yeah, who? Yeah, right. Okay, so here's a little video on the ridiculous things that people do to seek to be a hero. So often, people will discover a virtue such as integrity, or discover. You know, the benefits of a particular perspective on life or a particular attitude or a particular ethic, and then pursue it to absurd lengths. So you should have moderation in all things, including integrity. Here's an example of integrity going way too far and doing tremendous damage to a person unnecessarily. And I see this happening quite often. And I usually counsel people when they ask my opinion against this level of disclosure in, in pursuit of integrity. Someone, not an incident, a situation where I was working with a client that was in a pretty tough position. He's, um, he's relapsing over and over, really hard, having a really hard time staying sober. And he works in the healthcare profession and, and engaged in some behavior uh, on the job that would probably preclude him from getting future jobs to, to keep it intentionally vague. And so I was working with him and he was trying to get a new job. And on his application, he had lied about the circumstances that he came from. And so I was talking to him about the decision that he made to... Okay, your potential employers are not going to fully disclose the implications of your job. So you should not feel obliged to fully disclose to them. So in the American and I presume Australian work situation, it's highly transactional. It's not like what you get in a, you know, a group culture, a corporate culture like Japan, where transactions don't have to be negotiated. It's just once you're in, you're in, right? In America, these things are highly transactional. Your employer is not going to fully disclose to you. You do not need to fully disclose to your employer, right? If you hail a taxi and another taxi comes along first, you should take that taxi. 
if you've uh, made a date with someone and then someone better suited for you comes along, then you, you should probably prioritize the better fit for yourself rather than putting such enormous commitment on integrity or your prior word. So there are situations where most of us understand, such as hailing a taxi or, or dating, all right, where there are other things that are more important than standing behind your word. To hide that fact, and, and you know, we became aware of how stressful it was for him to hold on to that and still have to hide that and keep it back. Um, and so, you know, through the course of a couple of conversations, he eventually decided. So this guy, from from what I hear, couldn't handle his anxiety about being out of integrity, or couldn't handle his anxiety about keeping to himself the embarrassing thing that he did to get fired. And so now he, he f imagines that he can get clean by fully disclosing it to his next employer. And it ends up ruining his life. And if this guy has a family, this guy has kids, right? If this guy has other people who are depending upon him, he's blowing up their lives as well in this purported act of integrity. I decided to write a letter to the job that had actually by then offered him a job, and to be honest, and to apologize for lying and deceiving them. And they wow. rescinded the job offer. And they reported him to the board that oversees him. And he um, has had a lot of consequences from it. And it's a, it's. Yeah, you shouldn't invest more in other people, generally speaking, than they're willing to invest in you or they're willing to invest in themselves. For me, it was a really interesting situation to watch because what I became aware of was that for him, what he was doing, it was, it was part of men's part taking ownership, but the men's part really stood out to me. It was an act of integrity for him, right? He had, a, he had a choice point where he could go into this new phase of his life and continue the charade and continue the act and living a double life. And, you know, and I had concerns about that for him and staying sober. And these are the types of decisions that he was making. And so he went into this and it was such a, a complicated one because he really, you know, in a lot of ways functionally got punished for it. But it's so interesting watching how he's taken it as he feels good. So an enormous number of people in 12-step programs want to do this, you know, level of disclosure that will get them suspended from their professional associations. And generally speaking, sponsors advise against this level of disclosure that could cost you your you know, professional standing. But people often go ahead against the advice of their sponsors to self-destruct in this way. About the choice that you made. And to me, I just, it's one of the more poignant and, and relevant and real situations of this, this sort of stuff that, that I've seen. The, the real purpose of amends, I think, is, is making choices and decisions that you can feel proud of and, and, and decisions of integrity that you feel good about to rebuild yeah. your sense of, of, of how you feel about yourself. Yeah. And, and I just, I just wanted to throw that on top of what you're saying, because it is for, it is for me, it is for you, it is for the, the person making amends. And I just thought it was a really cool example of that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, that's so, and so yeah, if potential employers are going to present your position usually in the best light possible uh, without respect necessarily for the truth, right? But within a, a plausible presentation you know, with some plausible connection to the truth. And so too, when you go to a job interview, you should do the same, right? You don't have to, you know, fully disclose every foible. It brings up for me, for me, Brian, is, you know, when I, when I make an amends to someone, it, it, I liked your example of when you let the letter go, Tom, that that's, that's it, you're, you're done, you know, because with me, it's like, well, of course I'm not done. Of course, I've got all these expectations, at some level, right? Of course, yeah, I've yeah, got all these yeah. expectations and hopes and, you know, I want to be the, the hero of the story, you know, and I mean, all that stuff just shows yeah. up in me. I, I'm, you know, I'm just over 70 now. I'm sure I could live to be 142 and it would still, it would still be the same. It's, it's what Alan talks about, you know, who do I identify with in my life? at this point is it the first voice that shows up in my head or is it the second voice that shows up in my head and and i i just share that with people a lot of the reactions i have to people in situations a lot of the self-criticalness even self-hatred 
uh, judgments of other people aren't that different in a lot of ways from what I experienced in my 20s and 30s and 40s. The difference is that I now recognize those judgments as my problem, right? As my as my issue. That's the big right. difference. Rather than right. really thinking it's about you. And and when I when I go to somebody, uh, you know, we've also talked a lot about, you know, trouble shows up in our life not because we're doing something wrong, but because we need to learn something that we haven't yet learned well enough, right? In terms of applying yeah. it to our life. And that that's the value for me when I make an amends to someone is I just get to see all this stuff show up inside of me, expectations, hopes about a certain response. And then I just get to like go through all of that. And it just takes a few moments a lot of the time. Oh, there you are again. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. there you are again. Yeah. I know you. Hey, good. Hey. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it's like, and then it's, it's a very freeing when I'm able to successfully negotiate that territory to just watch that stuff show up. And, 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 Often, I, if, it's, if it's somebody I, I know well enough, I'll, I'll share that process with them. It's like, yeah, you know, it's such a trip. You know, you responded the way you responded, and I appreciate your response so much um, because, you know, this is like it, – it's a projection screen when I do stuff like this. I just get to see all my shit show up, you know? In- okay, fascinating interview between David Samuels, the interviewer, and David Garrow, the historian, author of Rising Star, a biography of Barack Obama. David Garrow also wrote an acclaimed biography of Martin Luther King. So David Samuels begins with a telling anecdote. So talking about Barack Obama and his most significant girlfriend, a woman who he invited twice to marry him. And uh, her name is Sheila. And she's gone on to become a professor. Sheila Miyoshi Jager, half white, half uh, Asian. And she's a scholar of uh, Korea. So Obama and Sheila are together at this point. I believe in the 1980s, they visit this art institute in Chicago where politics were being roiled by a black mayoral aide named Stephen Coakley in a series of lectures organized by Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, used Jewish doctors in the Chicago of infecting black babies with AIDS as part of a genocidal plot against African-Americans. Now, imagine if this guy had been white, right? He would have been widely, widely condemned. So the episode highlighted a deep rift within the city's power echelons with some prominent black officials supporting Coakley and others calling for his firing. So in Jager's recollection, what set off the quarrel that precipitated the end of their relationship was Obama's stubborn refusal to condemn black racism, well, black hatred of Jews, so she acknowledged that Obama's embrace of a black identity. All right, so for Obama, being black was a choice, right? He didn't have to you know, identify as black, but he chose that identity, and that was already creating some distance between the couple. But what upset her that day was Obama's inability to condemn the comments of this Chicago aide who said that uh, Jewish doctors in Chicago were deliberately infecting black babies with AIDS. So she was bothered that uh, Barack Obama would not condemn anti-Semitism. Now, as Obama was developing his in-group black identity, it doesn't surprise me or particularly appall me that uh, Obama here would not condemn black anti-Semitism because the more you grow in your in-group identity, the less likely you are to condemn behavior by your in-group. So, yeah, Obama did have an evolving black-based, race-based self-consciousness that distanced himself from Jager. But it's interesting to read Barack Obama's account of the breakup in his book, Dreams from My Father, against the very different account that Jager offers. So in Obama's account, he was the particularist, embracing a personal meaning for the black experience that Jager, the universalist, refused to grant. So in Jager's account, the polls of the argument 
are reversed. It is Obama who minimizes Jewish anxiety about blood libels coming from the black community. So his particularism mattered, hers did not. So Obama defined himself as a realist or a pragmatist, but the episode reads like a textbook evasion of moral responsibility. So Jager is something far more than a woman scorned by a man who had become president of the United States. So Obama asked her twice to marry him. She refused him both times. She's achieved her own high level of professional success. She's a professor of East Asian studies. Her scholarship is known for its factual rigor. By contrast, Dreams from My Father by Barack Obama is a work of dreamy literary fiction and a very poor attempt to document Obama's early life. So, the most revealing thing about Jager's account of her fight with Obama is that not one reporter in America bothered to interview her before David Garrow found her near the end of Obama's presidency. So I remember when I was living in Los Angeles, uh, after 2004, we had the first elected uh, Latino mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, and the press was very reluctant to report anything damaging about him. So when I found out in June that uh, he'd ceased wearing his wedding ring for about nine months publicly, and I posted that on my blog. Uh, that was the first time, even though many reporters you know, knew that uh, the mayor's marriage was over, that was the first time it was you know, published publicly. Then the LA Times responded, and then it became the number one story in California in, in 2007 because Gavin Newsom, the mayor of San Francisco at the time, was having his own marital issues. But they didn't want to report something damaging about LA's first Latino mayor in a century. So, too, the news media weren't particularly interested in publishing anything damaging about Barack Obama on his way to power or during his time in power. So you've got all these celebrated journalists who wrote popular biographies of Obama, became enthusiastic members of his circle, but uh, just had no interest in the woman who probably knew Barack Obama the best prior to Michelle. And uh, the, the character that Obama fashioned in his book, Dreams, has essentially been defined beyond the reach of normal repertorial scrutiny by America's journalistic elite. And David Garrow's biography of Obama, the only biography of Obama that I've read, Rising Star, is just filled with corrections of the historical record, corrections that uh, Obama more or less invented himself. So this book, Rising Star, highlights a remarkable lack of curiosity on the part of mainstream reporters and institutions about a man who almost instantaneously was treated by the media less like a politician and more like the idol of some cult. Let me get back to Mickey Carlos, Robert Wright. By the way, uh, related to the presidential election is, uh, so Gavin Newsom may debate Ron DeSantis? Well, they, they, they've, you know, there was an offer and acceptance. He offered to debate and DeSantis accepted. So but, in then, theory, but then Newsom's people suggested November. That's not soon enough. We, we need to get in the air this idea that there are alternatives to Biden. Right, right. I would think Newsom, Newsom would want to be one, right? I agree. I think Biden is putting the kibosh on it for the, re for the very reason we think it's good, because it shows there are younger people who are capable of the job and, uh, and puts Biden in a bad light. He wants to squash this. He, he doesn't want to give DeSantis any air because he wants to run against Trump, and he doesn't want to give, make Newsom make him look bad. So I think Newsom postponing it is he got a call from the White House probably saying, I like to postpone this for a few months. Uh, so that's terrible, but it, it's inevitable. I mean, I mean, Biden has such an interest in stopping it. Well, sign up somebody else. Uh, interesting question in the chat. Is it wrong to divorce my disabled husband? Wife doesn't want to wipe and clean up and deal with his uh, crippled behind. Uh, not everyone's capable 
of uh, dealing with a crippled spouse. Obviously, it's the ideal, but uh, not everyone's up to it. Uh, painful. So the more disposable that uh, society sees marriage and, and treats marriage, right? We take cues from other people. So if it's expected that in sickness and in health, we'll stick with our spouse, then people will feel much more pressure to stick with their spouse when it's considered uh, much more socially acceptable to jettison your spouse if you can do better, then that's exactly what people will do. Yeah, but see, see, here's the thing. I think there's a media hunger for somebody other than Biden. And it's perfect, though. Well, yeah, but there's a ton of people. Who be, can't they find some semi-credible people to debate Ron DeSantis? DeSantis wants the airtime. Not Put well, him on a cable well, show, he'll show not up. Well, Biden, well, yeah, he, I mean, Newsom is a particularly juicy opponent because the contrast between the really impolite, unswapped DeSantis and the pretty boy, uh, suave Gavin Newsom might work to DeSantis' right. advantage. They're the two states that hate each other that are competing. Newsom is the logical heir apparent. I mean, it's a perfect debate. It's hard to substitute somebody better. But Biden's going to stop. Biden's going to stop. You know, I, we don't have to debate Marianne Williamson. I mean, they're... they're, they're... So another... Th- Thing that would shed light on the morality of this decision do you stay or do you leave a crippled husband is what was the quality of your relationship like what is it like and how has he treated you has he put a premium on taking care of you and protecting and providing for you or did he not thrive in, in those arenas so the big reason that people cheat is often because of something that's going on inside a marriage a big reason that people decide to leave a marriage is because of things that are going on in, inside the marriage. So I think it would depend on the particulars of that particular relationship, how moral or immoral it would be to leave it. So generally speaking, when people do something nice for us, we feel morally obligated to in turn do something nice for them. But when people consistently mistreat us, we feel less and less trepidation about cutting ties with them. Uh, they there isn't anybody who's credible enough who Biden won't want to stop. Well, we should put on our thinking caps and come up with somebody, and then you could use your connections uh, to Magaland to get a message to DeSantis about whoever we decide should be the worthy debate opponent. I don't. Magaland means Trump these days. I don't have. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't have connections, Bob. I only have the illusion of connections. That's what I'm using the show for to propagate the illusion of connections. You know what? That's a segue to. Uh, no. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. Hunter, Hunter, Hunter Biden. It turns out. Well, that's, it turns out that's Joe's. That would be Joe's alibi, right? He was trying to foster the illusion of connection. No, the Hunter. Oh. Well, there's a bit of the alibi for both of them. Yeah. It came out. Uh, Hunter's business partner testified that they they had Joe was put on speakerphone twenty times by Hunter in front of clients, sometimes without uh, not Biden necessarily knowing about it. Uh, mm. He had dinner with clients twice at Cafe Milano. Just walking in at Cafe. So, how powerful and influential is Joe Biden? And if Joe Biden isn't the most powerful person in the world right now, who is? Who is the power behind Joe Biden? David Samuels writes about this in this Tablet Magazine article. So who's actually making decisions in a White House staffed top to bottom with core Obama loyalists? So when Obama turned up at the White House, staffers in the press crowded around him, leaving President Biden talking to the drapes. Not a metaphor, but a real thing that happened. So that Obama might enjoy serving as a third-term president, nor but name, running the government from his iPhone, was a thought expressed in public by Obama himself, both before and after he left office. So with all these clues, the Washington Press Corps, fresh off the years of broadcasting fantasies about secret communications between Trump and the Kremlin, seem unable to imagine, let alone report on Obama's role in government. So Obama is incredibly detached and lazy as President of the United States. It's hard to believe that he's secretly pulling the strings behind the scenes of the Biden administration. 
So near the end of June, Politico ran a long article noting Biden's cognitive decline with the quay headline, Is Obama Ready to Reassert Himself? As if the ex-president hadn't been living in the middle of Washington, D.C. and playing politics since the day he left office. Over the previous weeks, Obama had continued his central role as advocate for government censorship of the Internet while launching a new campaign against gun ownership, claiming it's linked to racism. So surely the spectacle of an ex-president simultaneously leading campaigns against both the First and the Second Amendments might have led an even a spectacularly incurious old-school Washington, D.C. reported to file a story on the nuts and bolts of Obama's political operation and on who was going in and out of his mansion. The D.C. press was no longer in the business of maintaining transparency. They'd become servants of power, whose job was to broadcast whatever myths helped advance the interests of the powerful. Well, when Trump was president, he was power, and the press wasn't particularly interested in broadcasting myths to advance his interests. Uh, Obama's campaigns against the First and Second Amendment haven't gained any traction. I don't think they strike anyone as particularly effective. That may be a big reason that they're not attracting more media scrutiny. There's another interpretation of Obama's post-presidency, and this is the one I share. Obama was never the leader of anything, neither during the Trump years nor now. Said he is focused on buying trophy properties, hanging out with billionaires, vacationing on private yachts, while grifting large checks from marks like Spotify and Netflix. Even as his now stratospheric levels of personal vanity demand that every so often he show up President Biden for the sin of occupying his chair in the White House. So, yeah, that strikes me as true. Obama is a celebrity-obsessed would-be billionaire, not so much a would-be American Castro, <laughs> reshaping American society from his basement. Yeah, I, I don't think Barack Obama is reshaping American society from his basement. Then David Samuel says, what I could never understand was Obama's contempt for the idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah, well, as a good liberal, as a good academic, someone who graduated from Harvard Law School, American exceptionalism will seem silly. So Obama insisted on poking American exceptionalists in the eye, saying he believed in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect the British believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. So why would the president of the United States feel the need to disabuse his countrymen of the idea that they are special? Well, I suspect that Obama's contempt for this way of thinking is pretty much the norm among people with his type of elite education. That uh, David Samuels finds this strange is itself strange, right? The, the more left you go in politics, the less nationalist you go, right? The further left you go in politics, the more you believe in centralized rule by experts who come from places like Harvard, where Barack Obama graduated law school. Samuels writes, what made Obama's rejection of American exceptionalism seem particularly weird to me was his attachment to Abraham Lincoln, whose cadences and economy of language he urged his speechwriters to emulate. Well, Obama wanted Abraham Lincoln's reputation. Right? That doesn't mean he wanted all of Lincoln's beliefs that went with that. Right? They were political operators operating in different Americas at different times. Right? A time of war is a time of greater nationalism. So Lincoln was far more of a war president than Obama. Then David Samuels writes, Obama's hostility to American exceptionalism seemed linked to his hostility to Israel or American identification with Israel. Well, I think that is just a common sense position. America is more linked with Israel than is in America's best interests, and perhaps even in Israel's best interests. Obama was determined to reach an agreement with Iran. Well, that makes sense. The most likely cause of a 
nuclear war in, in the world uh, during Obama's second term was Iran. So why would you not try to reach an agreement to delay them getting nuclear weapons? Right? I think Obama was correctly seeking out America's best interests, reaching some sort of agreement with Iran. And I believe that Barack Obama got about the best deal possible with Iran. I don't have strong feelings about the Iran deal to the extent I understand it. I think it was in America's best interests. So there is no objective reason for America to identify more with Israel than, say, with New Zealand. So I think that Barack Obama put an appropriate level of focus on the Iran deal to reduce the chances of some kind of nuclear conflagration in the Middle East. So David Samuels admits, I've never seen any evidence that Barack Obama had the slightest animus towards Jews as individuals, but from his denial of American exceptionalism, his sourness toward Israel, uh, well, that, that just makes sense, given the, you know, the, the complicated and intense relationship to the two countries that is against America's interest. Uh, there does seem to be some kind of awareness by Obama, the problem posed to his politics by Jews, problem posed by Jewish group survival, and their continuing insistence on Jewish historical particularity. I don't see that. Right? Obama has a left-wing perspective on life, which does not value religious states or ethnic states. So it makes sense to me that somebody on the left would not be a fan of the modern state of Israel, which is built on ethnic and religious identity. It doesn't make Obama a bad person. I think everyone on the left who, who believes that uh, states should not be built on racial and religious identity, again, have problems with the Jewish state. I suspect to Barack Obama, Jews are white, just as almost all Jews in America regard Jews as white. So David Samuels writes, ghettos were invented for Jews. Yeah, particular times and particular places. Concentration camps, too. How can Jews be privileged white people if they're clearly among history's victims? Well, every group can think of reasons why its group is a victim. So this isn't unique to Jews. If Jews aren't white, then perhaps a lot of other white people are also victims and therefore aren't white. Maybe black people aren't always or primarily black. Maybe the whole progressive race-based ideology is a load of crap, which is why the Jews remain a problem. I don't think Barack Obama has a big problem with Jews as a group. This just doesn't ring true to me, right? Every group feels itself a victim. All strong in-group identity depends in large part upon a sense of victimization. Or nationalism, nationalisms depend upon a sense of victimization. And if you believe your group was victimized and deserves reparations from our groups, you're not going to be deterred or put off by the suffering of our groups. There's a presumption that you're guilty of some sort of crime. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you know, that's... that's so who had dinner twice? Hunter so had dinner Biden, twice? Hunter had two dinners that Biden showed up at and actually ate a meal and talked to the people. They, they, Archer claimed that in all these things, they only talked about the weather and various... They never talked about business because the purpose was to brand Hunter uh, with the Biden name and, and to show that he could get Joe on the phone and to show that he was a Biden and to give the clients... He was selling the illusion of access to Joe. The, the, the Democratic line is he didn't actually have access to Joe. He couldn't actually get Joe to right. do things. Right. But he wanted the clients to think that. Okay, think about that for a while. Just even on its face, the best Democratic argument has Biden being the accessory to this fraud that his son was perpetrating 
Uh, the unknowing device. accessory. The unknowing accessory, right? No, he's not an idiot. He knows when, when, a, when a Burisma is, is a special envoy to Ukraine. When then, you know no, what I'm Burisma not saying he wasn't knowing. There's a Burisma saying, guy at the dinner, and Hunter is, Hunter is he's a potential Hunter client. Biden, Joe Biden knows what's going on, okay? I'm not saying he doesn't, I, I, but I thought you began the sentence with something like the best Democratic case, the best argument Democrats can make, and I would finish that with, is that Biden was an unknowing. But there's, it's completely implausible that he was unknowing that Hunter was selling the illusion of access. Uh, that, well, wait, that, would, wait. that would imply that he's such a moron that he shouldn't even, uh, you know, shouldn't hold any public. Okay, let's go back here to David Samuel's essay in Tablet. It says, I can make the case that Obama's public life was the amoral part, beginning with the toleration of genocide in Syria. So according to David Samuels, apparently the United States should not have tolerated genocide in Syria. So the United States apparently should not tolerate genocide everywhere. So we should just go around intervening militarily in all sorts of places far beyond our ability that would be completely against America's best interests. So for David Samuels, operating against America's best interests by militarily intervening in Syria is the moral thing to do. Then David Samuels is also upset with the extrajudicial killing of U.S. citizens. All right, these are U.S. citizens who are carrying out terrorist attacks against Americans while operating overseas. I don't have a problem with killing them. Extending to wide-scale illegal surveillance and spying. And he has now become the spokesperson for getting the First Amendment in favor of government censorship of large tech platforms. Well, Barack Obama's opinion on uh, gutting the First Amendment in favor of government censorship of large tech platforms is largely normal for people of his education and social class. I don't think there's anything extraordinary about it. I disagree with it, but that is the norm when you're part of the elite. All right, if you're an elite, you want to reduce criticism of your status as elite. When you are striving to become elite and replace the current elites, you want more freedom of speech so that you can climb your way up the greedy, greasy pole. The defense of Obama is that he was never touched by scandal, meaning personal scandal. And you're like, well, I'm sure all those people who got gassed to death in Syria or growing up in American towns with no jobs feel just great about the fact that he never got a blowjob in the Oval Office. Uh, to the extent that there are American towns with no jobs, that's not primarily Barack Obama's fault. And if there are people who got gassed to death in Syria, I don't see how that's any worse than getting stabbed to death or shot to death. And I don't think it's America's job to prevent bad things happening in other countries in the world. It's America's job primarily to act in America's best interests. At all. I'm He's sitting here trying to figure out if it's possible for, if it's an illusion for Biden to know about it, but I guess you could say he, the access is, is an illusion because Biden's not going to do anything that Hunter suggests, but Biden knows that Hunter is fostering the illusion right. that he does have right. influence right. over Biden. So, but, uh, keep keep uh, in mind, a couple, a couple of points. First, in Ukraine politics, everything depends, your status depends on, do you have the blessing of the Americans? Because the whole country depends on America, the way right. the Irish rebels depend on America. So, uh, just having Biden's name attached helps for reason, even if there's no illusion of access. Second, I think Biden's out is that he didn't get any money for it, okay? I think if he got money for helping perpetrate this fraud on Hunter's clients, mm -hmm. game over. He's guilty of being accessory to a fraud. He should be impeached. But uh, it's not as bad as stealing the election, but it's it's worse than Watergate, and it's bad. Uh, the, sec the, the second thing is, do we really think it stopped at the illusion of access? Wasn't there actual access and maybe actual results? There's not a lot of evidence of that. The two pieces of evidence that I have are, first, this old article from DC Examiner from I think 27, 20, 2007 or something when Biden was a senator and Hunter had some clients that wanted to change the rules for credentialing chemical workers, okay? Biden intervened on behalf of Hunter's clients, okay? He delivered. Not the illusion of access, the reality of access and the reality of influence successfully peddled. 
So Biden has delivered for Hunter before, even in that one example. If there's that one example, how many others were there? The second. So uh, half Galician in the chat says the Torah commands us to watch our free testosterone. This Robert Wright guy, when he talks more than 30 seconds, I feel my testosterone level starting to drop. Only the angry, assertive Jew, Mickey Kaus, restores my testosterone levels. Tucker Carlson kills my testosterone too, that high-pitched laugh and bow tie. No wonder that Fox shows raw supplements. So the guy on the right here is Mickey Kaus. The guy on the left is Robert Wright. So I popped my testosterone supplement uh, last night. And as a result, I had all sorts of lustful thoughts, which did not aid in the, in the quality of my sleep. Second thing is, the widow of the mayor of Moscow uh, sent a big check to invest with Hunter's firms, of which they got a cut, uh, and she wanted to be off the sanctions list, and she was not on the sanctions list. Now, it just, was it just a coincidence that she sent this money and she wasn't on the sanctions list, or was there some, uh, you know, uh, access, uh, successful influence peddling by Hunter? We don't know, but it's, it's possible. It's an avenue to explore. Uh, it's all we got at this point. But, uh, they, but whether or not that their access was actually peddled, I think if Joe got money, he's guilty. Uh, what what I can say basically. Uh, Half Galician says, look, the only testosterone supplements are red meat and push-ups. Well, I do plenty of push-ups and, and pull-ups. I'm starting to, starting to press against my shirts, right? My, my chest is expanding. My shirts are getting a little uncomfortably tight. So the testosterone supplement that I occasionally take may be just all in my head. It may just have a placebo effect. But uh, thank God for placebo effects. I'm down with the placebo. All right, back to this uh, Tablet Magazine article. So what exactly does it mean that uh, Obama tolerated genocide in Syria? I mean, genocides are going on all over the world. Really, is it America's job to stop them when that goes against American best interests? Right? Obama approved the killing of U.S. citizens abroad who had turned their backs on America and were organizing terror attacks on Americans. So I don't have any problem killing them. Now, David Garris says, I think a major turning point in Barack Obama's presidency was where he and Dennis McDonough walk around the White House grounds and Obama changes his mind about Syria. So Obama had said something stupid about Syria, saying that if the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons on their own people, that that'd be a red line, so presumably meaning the U.S. would intervene militarily. So it's one thing to say something stupid. We all say something stupid. Obama did the right thing in not following up, saying something stupid, by doing something stupid, which would have been far more stupid. So Obama changed his mind. He walked back his red line comments on Syria, and that strikes me as wise. And uh, then the article talks about Barack starts calling his ex-girlfriend Sheila again after David Garrow had uncovered her, right? He's calling her again because Obama needs to keep her close because she to knows too much of his story, how he invented himself, and she becomes a wild card if she no longer feels a tie to him. David Garrow says, when I started reading Barack Obama's book in early 2008, Dreams from My Father, and I thought, this is a crock. It's not history. It's all make-believe. Who knows what the real story is? David Samuel says, I've got the feeling from people close to Obama that his pose of being a writer is one that he refers in many ways to being a politician. So he doesn't want his writerliness or his you know, fictional abilities to be revealed. He doesn't want to be challenged. It's my story. I created it. I owned it. 
So Barack Obama, the prime mover, perhaps, in the transformation of the American society we're living through now, according to Samuel's identity, Obama is the transformer. I see him much more as a mannered observer, a huge narcissist who couldn't care less about anything outside himself. Obama struck me as too passive to move much of anything. He is that mannered observer and a narcissist. I think Barack Obama in the winter of 2008 realized there was no way that his presidency could live up to expectations. And even fanboy journalists acknowledge that it ended up being an underwhelming, disappointing presidency. It will be seen as a failed presidency because of the international failures. And so according to David Garrow, the number one legacy of the Obama presidency is going to be the failure to intervene in Syria and the failure to object to Russia taking Crimea and the Donbass in 2014. That's ridiculous. My God, I have no trust in David Garrow's judgment if he thinks that these are failures by the Obama presidency. But uh, David Samuel's got a good point here. He says the best way to understand Barack Obama is that he is a literary creation of Barack Obama, the writer, who authored the novel of his own life, Dreams from My Father, and then proceeded to live out this fictional character that he created for himself on the page. David Samuel says future historians are going to look back at the Obama presidency and see it as the moment when this new oligarchy merged with the Democratic Party, used the capacities of these new technologies and the power of this new class of people, the oligarchs and their servants, to create a new apparatus of social control. How far can they go with it? What are the limits? You see them testing this out every week or so. So was Barack Obama the author of this new machine? Did he create it purposefully or does it report back to him? I think all three suggestions there are absurd. And obviously, Barack Obama is not the author of this new machine. He didn't create it, and it doesn't report back to him. Now, I think David Garrow is absolutely right here when he says Barack Obama has no interest in building the Democratic Party as an institution. Never had any deep, meaningful policy commitments other than the need to feel and seem victorious. Obama is just as insecure as Trump, but in ways that are not readily perceived. And Obama is not someone who retains people. Uh, even Valerie Jarrett and David Axelrod only go back to like 2003. So the only person who has a little bit of a through line with Barack Obama is Rob Fisher, who's, David Garrett says, the brightest person I've met in my life. Rob would argue with Obama. And the second book, when Obama's trying to get it finished during the campaign, The Audacity of Hope, Rob tells him it's a mess and Barack Obama gets angry. You can't tell a U.S. senator that his book is a mess. So Rob would disagree with him in intellectual and academic ways. And Rob and his wife went to the White House a few times, but this was not a usual thing because Barack Obama does not want to be close with people who are his equals. So you see this with a lot of live streamers and gurus. They don't want friends as much as followers. Right? None of the people who are ostensibly Obama's best friends are anywhere close to his equal. You see how Obama got elected to the Harvard Law Review and to the presidency, and look at how he functioned as president of the Law Review to how he functioned as U.S. president, right? He's not a particularly ideological figure. He's got this distant, light-touch management system, has no investment in what the contents of the Harvard Law Review volume end up being. He doesn't write his own note. He's not interested in producing a work of legal scholarship. So for Barack Obama, the Law Review presidency is just like going to Harvard. It's a credentialing enterprise. It's not a personal investment in policy substance. Obama would be terrible on the U.S. Supreme Court because he's lazy. 
in the book Rising Star, Obama says, I'm fundamentally lazy and it's because I'm from Hawaii. Uh, Barack Obama once said to this man in Chicago, the only two things he wants in life are a valet and an airplane. Now, what was incredibly uh, weird about the Obama presidency and the excitement over him, that so many white people thought that this would be the cure for the legacy of American racism. Well, America's racial problems are primarily the result of the particular compositions of races in America and everywhere else in the world with the same compositions have similar problems. There was never any chance that President Barack Obama could solve America's racial problems. He did have the ability to make them worse, which he did, right? So we got the rise of Black Lives Matter in 2014. America's racial problems significantly got worse between 2008 and 2016. They particularly got worse between 2013 and 2016. So David Samuels is a smart and accomplished writer. Everything he publishes is thought-provoking, but he doesn't seem to be making much of an effort here to substantiate most of his points. He doesn't seem particularly interested to know much about what he's pronouncing on. His epistemics are lousy. He's essentially asking us to accept his points on faith. In his previous interview for Tablet, he essentially promoted JFK Jr.'s worldview. And then June 11, 2020, he published a story on Kevin McDonald that did not advance the story one inch. It was a complete waste that got no resonance, no mentions. So David Samuels refused to consider any of Nathan Coffness's penetrating essays on Kevin MacDonald. David Samuels apparently hadn't even re read the Coffness critique, apparently hadn't even read Kevin MacDonald's Culture of Critique book, and it's just an absurd essay interview. He writes, Rural Oregon has many of the same problems as any American inner city, except it is overwhelmingly inhabited by people with white skin. Really, rural Oregon has the same problems as American inner cities, right? He provides no evidence for this assertion. How on earth does rural Oregon resemble American inner cities? By which metrics, right? So the place he's talking about, Medford, Oregon, averages fewer than a murder a year, right? That's hardly inner city levels. What is the crime rate in rural Oregon? What, what's the percentage of felons living in rural Oregon? What's the average educational level? What's the average IQ level? What's the out-of-wedlock birth rate? Is it close to inner-city life or not? Or is David Samuels just lying? The evidence says he's lying. Based on my limited knowledge of the case, is there is definitely a risk that if, if Biden is the president, <laughs> presidential candidate, that more stuff will come out that will make it clear that something shady went on. I think it's entirely possible something did. There was certainly the vague appearance of something shady, uh, and that's not good. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's such an indictment of the Democratic Party that there's no serious movement to dump this guy. And I think Ukraine is on the verge of becoming a serious problem for him, as I will discuss shortly. I think the bigger problem is Kamala. I don't think Biden has been, Biden's, Biden's poll numbers are much worse than the president he's been. I don't think he, he hasn't been that bad a president on the economy. He hasn't even been that bad yeah, a president no, on Ukraine. But the poll numbers are terrible. And you're right, Democrats should probably figure out something to do. But uh, it's a little bit of a bad rep, and he's not crazy to think. Well, no, if but the economy I think a lot gets better, of, if the economy gets better, it'll turn around for him. No, but a lot of the Democrats in polls who say they wish he weren't on the ticket cite something other than his performance on the economy. Blah blah blah. They say he's old as shit. He's too old to be president. He's losing multiple steps, not losing a step, and that's all right. That's accurate. That's he, true. He has terrible ratings on the economy too. Well, that's not fair. Um, there, there is some evidence we're about to slide into a slowdown. Okay, so a link here suggested by the chat woman calls in should i divorce my disabled husband 
from the Dr. John. All right, let's go out to Delaney Denver, show. Colorado, and talk to the great Di Ann. What's up, Diane? Hey, John Deloney. How are you? I'm <laughs> so good. How about you? Good. What's up? So I have got a kind of moral, ethical dilemma going on <laughs> in my personal life, and I have a son-in-law and daughter who listen frequently, and he said, you know who you need to ask is Dr. John Deloney. So, so here we are, I'm gonna, huh? Here we are. And I'm not I'm a very moral or ethical person, so just so you know. <laughs> well, I have listened to you enough to know that is not true. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> so I'm gonna kind of lay it all out there. It's a kind of a long story. I'm gonna make it as brief as I can because uh, go for it's, it. It's a, it's been a, it's been a long few years. Go so for it. five years ago, first of all, I'm 49 years old. I'm married for 30 years to just the most amazing man. We have eight incredible kids, and um, five years ago, we took the kids up to the mountains about three hours away from home, went mountain biking, and he was in. He crashed his bike, very, very severely suffered um, a traumatic brain injury that almost killed him. Um, I know so many people who are people over 40 who've crashed their, their bike and been badly injured. doesn't seem like a wise thing to do uh, on city streets in particular, or if you're over 40, your bones are going to be more brittle. We spent two months in local hospitals, five brain surgeries, had half of his skull removed, coma, you know, all of the, everything, just a horrible couple of months. He regained consciousness enough that they accepted him to a rehab hospital eight hours away. They said for two months, we'll do rehab and do the best that we can. So I packed up, left my kids with family members, and I went um, to this rehab hospital for two months. And that two-month stay, due to a very serious stroke and seizures, turned into a seven-month stay. And we finally got to go home. He came home with a trach in, um, a feeding tube in his stomach. I had to learn how to put a catheter in. I'll, you know, I learned how to take care of him so we could bring him home. I had so much faith, John, the whole time he would be healed. I just, I knew it. And I'm a religious person, and we had so much faith, and we were. Okay, uh, on what basis did you have faith that your husband would heal because you're religious? All right, you're no more likely to be healed from a catastrophic injury if you're religious than if you're an atheist, right? You're no more likely to avoid bad things happening in your life. I mean, when I walk around Beverly Hills, right, I often notice amazing plunging cleavage and often bouncing right in the middle of the cleavage is a, a golden cross, right? And so to echo the words of Dennis Prager, do, do people wear a cross to signal a serious commitment to Christ? or do they wear it as a good luck charm? Most people seem to believe that their religion operates like a good luck charm, that it makes them less likely for bad things to happen to them and makes them more likely to receive miracles. And I don't believe there's any evidence for any of that. So hard. I knew he would be, he would get better, at least better enough that we could carry on a conversation with him. He would be. Yeah, I hate cyclists on, uh, pedestrian paths. I hate them on city streets. I hate how they block traffic. I understand why drivers frequently become angry with them. So yeah, if you're over 40, don't ride a bike, particularly on on city streets. Now, if you're in a very safe rural community, I still don't think it's a good idea to be riding a bike over age 40. But I mean, nobody should be riding a bike on, on city streets. That's just insanely dangerous. Somewhat himself. And over the next two years of having it, him at home, it was a lot of work, um, and he just never really got better. He did learn to walk again. We taught him to walk, um, but ultimately his injuries are, he lost hearing, he's completely deaf, um, and he has no short-term memory, so we can't even teach him sign language because he can't learn new things. He knows my kids. Um, he knows anything that happened 10 years ago or more, but anything that's happened 
about two years before the accident and anything current, he has no idea. He doesn't remember he's had three kids. So if you've got kids and a spouse and people who depend upon you, you definitely should not be riding a bike or putting yourself in unnecessary danger. So this guy put himself in unnecessary danger and you know, created havoc for his family. Kids get married. He has grandkids. I have an eight-year-old. He was kind of our surprise baby. And he doesn't, he knows that he has an eight-year-old, but doesn't really know him. He forgets their name sometimes. He I love this point in the chat. Bicyclists want pedestrian protection when convenient vehicle rides when not. And uh, yeah, faith can sustain hope and ward off stress, but uh, practically speaking, you're not going to avoid you know, the bad things in life because you have a religious faith. And practically speaking, you're not going to receive miracles just because you're religious, right? I guess that might occasionally happen. It's not the way to bet. He has no concept of space or time or age or distance. All of that part of his brain was damaged. Um, and two years. So this woman apparently has stayed by this guy's side for five years, which is just an extraordinary level of sacrifice. Years ago, I decided for the sake of my kids' lives moving on in mind that I needed to put him into a facility. So he's in an assisted living facility just a few miles from home. We go see him all the time. Um, A couple months after we put him in that facility, we made some medical decisions, decided it was time to let him go. And we put him on hospice and thought the time would come that he would pass. And it's been almost two years. And despite all medical odds, science, everything, he's still with us. Pretty much no quality of life. Um, We've prepared ourselves to let him go so many times when it looked like everything was heading that direction. And he's still with us. And it's just been so hard to know how to move on. Um, Yeah. How much should people have to sacrifice because you made really bad decisions? Right, so I have uh, a lot of empathy for this woman, and this man is apparently not not functioning hardly at all. So it's not like he's you know mentally there and just physically impaired, right? He's both physically, mentally, emotionally impaired. Through this process, I got my master's degree. I you know I went back to school. I I was recently I've become an LCPC, so I'm able to work now and provide for my family. Awesome. So my question is, sorry, that took so long, but here's my question. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we ask you a question. Okay. Can I just sit with you in that for a minute? Yeah. That's so, so much. It's a lot, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. This could be a whole Hollywood movie that would last 10 hours. So My um, oldest best friend on planet Earth is a traumatic brain survivor, and um, when I'm with him now and we go out, I still have to help him go to the bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. still, have to, still have to have people take care of him and help him. Um, and I can't imagine going up 100x that with building a life with somebody because it changes everything, right? Oh, man. It changes the way you breathe. Yep. Yep. And my guess is, as a mom of eight, you've been solving and fixing for five years. Yeah, I have been. And then you went and got a freaking master's degree. Like, at some point. At some, at some point. I know. Have you exhaled? You know, after about year one, I did, and I still had so much hope and so much faith, and we would work with him every day, work on walking, work on brain stuff. Like, don't let him just sit in front of the TV. Like, we got to work with him. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And then after about year three, I just really had to shift my thinking that this isn't going to turn out how I thought it would. Um, so we, we've, we've come to peace with it. In fact, we've come, we came to so much peace with him passing. That is what we've been praying for for the last two years, that it would be better for him. I mean, 
you know, you talk about your friend and, and, and how that is with him. My husband is. So the way you operate or the way your in-group operates provides incentives for other people in how they relate to you. If the way you you conduct your life, right, is such that other people would be better off without you, right, you're incentivizing all sorts of negative behavior against you. And if the way that your group conducts itself makes it so that other groups would be better off without your group in their midst, right, how long can you expect people to show this level of forbearance if uh, if your group, say, is committing an astronomical amount of crime or is consuming, say, an astronomical amount of government social services without an equivalent level of uh, contributing back through the, the tax base, right? We should be building lives both as individuals and as groups that are a blessing to the people around us. Otherwise, you're incentivizing other people to pull the plug on you. And there are many different ways to pull the plug on an individual or a group. The same way. He would be humiliated to see what he has become. This is not what he would want. It's not, this is not the kind of life. I mean, he, if he had his right sense, he would say, why didn't you just let me go three years ago? Why did you keep me alive? And I listened to your last caller and it breaks my heart, the loss that she Okay, I think that's that's enough. Uh, the chat's getting depressed. Just absolutely horrific story. All right, I want to go back to talking about the Republican brain. Chris Mooney is the author of this new book from 11 years ago, The Republican Brain, and use it to decode one of my favorite podcasts, Decoding the Gurus. Is that we could use our minds, we could use the new institution of science from the 17th century, we could use it to answer these difficult questions and to do social policy better. In that sense, I'm, I'm an Enlightenment. I'm a big fan of the Enlightenment, and I think this new work is part of the Enlightenment project. What it says, paradoxically, is that if you think that reason, individual reason, is the way forward, well, then you're wrong. And so for 300 years, the project has been barking up the wrong tree. Because we're all so crippled by the confirmation bias, because we all as individuals... Wait, confirmation biases. Basically, we use our reason just to confirm what we already believe. Right. If that's true, about all of us, then I think we all have to get a little more humble as individuals, recognize that as individuals we're not very good at finding the truth, that we only can find the truth when we're put into relationships in which other people can question our confirmation bias, and this is what has changed. Science works because each of us individually flawed scientists challenge each other. And so, so as Chris says, over time the scientific community does update, whereas, say, the religious right may not. Yeah, so I, I agree with all of that. Reasons a weak read compared to the power of genetics and the power of imprinting and the power of incentives. I also agree that we reason much better when we reason collectively rather than just, you know, in, in our own heads. So decoding the gurus, right? A couple of center-left academics, Chris Cavanaugh and Matt Brown, have a podcast, Decoding the Gurus. I think they're generally on pretty sound ground, but they do have their own subjective partisan left-wing hero system, right, that condemns what they call racism, bigotry, xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, and the like. And while they talk as though that these condemnations are just based on universal truths, easily accessible by, by reason to all, rather they are subjective hero systems, just like the, the Orthodox Jewish way of uh, looking at the world is a subjective hero system and the orthodox christian way of looking at the world is a subjective hero system right uh, secular liberals have their own subjective hero system so how do you play the game among elites among our elite institutions which are dominated by the left how do you play the game in academia right you play the game according to its rules right this is usually going to do more for your success than merit or groundbreaking scholarship and so what are the rules right 
But the, the rules are that you regard yourselves, the liberal left enlightened ones, as guardians of reason, guardians of enlightenment, that you're not really implementing a sectarian agenda based on a subjective hero system. No, you're fighting for universalist virtues like objectivity, inclusivity, diversity, benevolence. Now, conservatives charge that this is just an aura of superior virtue, and I'm borrowing here from the analysis of philosopher Ronnie Goodman. They, conservatives will point out this is a sophisticated social illusion, that it is a dishonest secular facade for a moralistic and quasi-religious impulse, right? A hidden will to power that seeks only to uphold one parochial subjective hero system and social identity at the expense of its rivals. So thinking about one friend of mine who had a tenured faculty position, then he nonetheless lost his job when his pseudonymous and disturbing to most people social media comments about Jews right, were revealed to his dean through an email. So getting dubbed on to your community, to your spouse, to your family, to your boss, right, is going to be near the top of concerns for most people. And getting dubbed on to your dean is going to be about the top concern for most academics, including Matt Brown and Chris Kavanaugh. They admitted as much in a Patreon video that I played on one of my shows in late December 2022 or early January 2023. So to have a nice life, academics like uh, Brown and Kavanaugh, along with the rest of us, we tend to shy away from saying things that could get us in hot water with the people who are most important to us, unless we have a disabling level of narcissism that must receive attention at all costs, which is something that I have frequently suffered from. Uh, one thing I've learned from interviewing thousands of people is that everybody's vulnerable. Right? Everybody has their weak points. We're all accountable to someone. Now, decoding the gurus, right? they talk a great deal about epistemic considerations. Epistemology is the study of how do we know what we know. And so they see themselves as coming primarily from a place of truth. But a big part of the motivation for operating from this place of epistemic considerations resides, in the words of philosopher Charles Taylor, in the prestige and admiration surrounding the whole scientific stance itself with the sense of freedom, power, control, invulnerability, dignity that it radiates, right? All the virtues of the buffered, autonomous, strategic, you know, rational identity that is encouraged by this modern transformation of what were Protestant impulses in in an entirely secular, you know, left-wing direction. So the easiest way to approach the world for an academic today is to wrap yourself in the mantle of science, right? And get that sense of freedom, power, control, invulnerability, and dignity that it radiates as long as the decoding the gurus can wrap itself in science, then they can feel relatively invulnerable to cancellation. They can feel dignified, in control, and free. Now, a problem with this is much of what is considered true, much of what is considered expertise by our elite, is a game, right? Where you play the game of expertise, which is getting hailed by your peers as an expert by jumping through a credentialing process. Right? Much of education is learning to be educated in the process of getting an education. Right? Becoming an expert means that you secure the approval of your peers and they sign off on your credentials as an expert. So every professional in particular primarily wants the approval of his peers, and this desire for social approval of his peers is far more incentivized than the pursuit of truth. 
Uh, you can't expect anyone to understand something if their income, their happiness, and their social status depends upon not understanding some obvious truth, such as uh, group differences. So when almost all of our institutions are dominated by the left, particularly in academia and media and culture, right, when the left controls the cultural means of production, it makes perfect sense for non-leftists to have a knee-jerk suspicion of the establishment. Right? When the left controls the cultural means of production, right, there's going to be a knee-jerk response that you know, public discussion controlled by these institutions is a sham. It's an illusion. It is an instrument of authority, not its basis, as Stephen Turner noted in 1989. So when the left largely decides what are the real issues and who are the real experts, it makes sense for those not on the left to rebel and to express considerable skepticism about university-appointed elites. Let me play a bit more here from Jonathan Haidt talking with Chris Mooney. Uh, Chris, this one is aimed probably mostly at you, but I'd like to know the take of both of you on this. This idea of it, there being a conservative personality. A few years ago, I yeah, you're, you're... proposed, and it was on blogging heads. I'm very interested in evolution. I love biology. And I've always wondered whether natural selection explained everything. I do not believe in God. I'm not interested in intelligent design. But I read a book by Michael Behe that was saying that when it gets to how evolution creates large jumps and steps as opposed to small things, it seems like there must be some other mechanism. We don't know what it is. Michael Behe thought that it was about God, I was thinking, I wonder what... Yeah, the liberal left elite love evolution, except the part of evolution ongoing over the past 10,000 years, evolution producing different groups with different gifts because different groups have evolved in very different circumstances. And they don't like to talk about evolutionary effects on different group metrics with regard to things like you know, cognitive powers and personality traits this other thing might be. I found it fascinating. I contacted him. We did a blogging heads debate. I had a new one, several new ones torn out of me oh, by the blogging surprise. heads community. Mm. The liberal scientists thought that I was the worst thing people write. I've never seen someone so high fall so low so quickly. <laughs> and all of this was the kind of behavior that is associated with conservatives. There's a circling of the wagons. Not reason, because I was trying to make sense. I wasn't making a godly argument. That happened. It's over. But it leads me to think <laughs> that this is perhaps human behavior. How do we fit in that even with evolution, the facts are not always as clear completely as we're told and that if you dare to question this, if you but dare to say anything about it in public, the scientific community is really, that's intelligent design. I mean, the scientific community is extraordinarily strongly rejected that. Right. And if they get a little upset when you bring it up, it's because it's a direct right. assault to their science. Okay, so let's go back to the garometer, all right, a way of assessing the gurus as composed by these two center-left academics, Chris Kavanaugh and Matt Brown. So it notes that a cult will generally have more than a few bones to pick with supposedly nefarious forces in the outside world. Okay, if institutions in the outside world are dominated by leftists and liberals, it would make sense that people who are not on the left would have a few bones to pick with the powers that be. Fascist organizations would derive much energy from narratives of grievance focused on specific outgroups. Anyone with an in-group identity is going to derive much energy from a narrative of grievance against outgroups. It's nothing unique to fascists. Feelings of frustration and oppression, in other words, being human, everyone has these feelings, Feelings of being excluded and disregarded, right? Everyone has these feelings. Feelings of being deprived of one's manifest rights and recognitions. Everyone has these feelings, right? Represent a potent set of negative emotions. Yeah, everyone has these feelings. Every in-group has these feelings. And for good reasons, too. Gurus will often rely on narratives of grievance pertaining to themselves and their potential followers to drive engagement. 
a worldview in which all is essentially fair and just is not one that will encourage people to search for alternative ways to view the world. Correct. But if you have reasons for grievance, right, then you'd probably be incentivized to get the in-group power and energy that comes from nurturing those grievances. Right? Gurus often engage in personal grievance narratives. They provide emotional connection and sympathy for the guru. They provide a convenient explanation for why someone their unique talents has not been well supported or given their recognition they deserve by the outside world. Right, sometimes this is with good basis, and sometimes it's with a fatuous basis, as with Brett and Eric Weinstein. Uh, gurus relate to conspiratorial ideation, explaining why their special ideas and perspectives have not been recognized and accepted by the outside world because their ideas have been suppressed by malevolent and powerful actors for selfish reasons. Well, often ideas and perspectives and individuals are suppressed by outside powerful actors for their own reasons, right? Every form of in-group identity, including every form of nationalisms, inculcates victimization, right? The stronger you believe in Islam or Christianity or Judaism or the gay lifestyle, right? The stronger you believe that the world outside your in-group is a nefarious place. The stronger your in-group identity, the more likely you are to see the negative in out-groups. So you really can't enjoy a strong in-group identity without taking on culty vibes or ties bind and blind. That's Jonathan Haidt. So this center-left secular show decoding the gurus is inherently suspicious of strong in-group identity. But life, for most people, is better off with a strong in-group identity. So the grometer essentially says a high score on the grometer is bad. It refers to potentially exploitive gurus who produce ersatz wisdom, meaning a corrupt epistemics that creates the appearance of useful knowledge but has none of the substance. Well, you know who can't be exploited this way? Someone who doesn't love, someone who lacks ties, someone who doesn't have in-group loyalties, right? To love is to be vulnerable. To be tied to other people is to be vulnerable. Most people don't want to live without love, right? A life without love is not a particularly high-functioning one. So the grometer notes, a heightened sense of how the world is not right and how it ought to be fixed and the, the gurus are the persons to do it is a common feature. The broader public fails to recognize their genius and fails to heed their advice. Thus, the world lurches from calamity to calamity. So gurus often position themselves as a Cassandra, warning of possible calamities that can be avoided if only their advice is heeded. And the followers gain a role for themselves in supporting, defending, and promoting the guru. They can help make the world a better place. Well, those out of power are more likely to believe that something's wrong with the world. Right? That is only common sense. If your group lacks power, if your institutions in your society are dominated by people with a hostile perspective on your in-group, right? you have very rational and empirical reasons to believe that the world around you is not right. Given that most American institutions are dominated by the left, why would non-leftists be at ease with the current power structure? Guru, the Gurometer says, gurus are greatly attracted to claiming they have developed game-changing and paradigm-shifting intellectual products. Well, given that the left largely controls the intellectual means of production, why would someone not on the left not seek out game-changing and paradigm-shifting intellectual products? Right? Decoding the gurus wants us to engage primarily on the basis of epistemics. How do we know what we know? But this disengaged, reflexive, buffered, rationalistic perspective on life is a modern, secular, liberal, leftist one. It's very different from how traditionalists experience life. And we all have our subjective hero systems. 
It's just that people on the left, like the host of Decoding the Gurus, seem to believe that they have transcended hero systems, that they are just sharing objective truths. Scientific expertise. Sure. I'm not sure that that's the same. But I mean, even if you react. say, I don't believe that it's intelligent design, it's not about God, but well, is there Michael something, is there something else? But I don't think scientists agree component. with him that there are big gaps in the theory right, of evolution. Right, right. 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 He essentially is putting God in the process or implying that God's in the process. So right. if you bring Michael Behe on, and the evolutionary scientists are going to be extremely upset. Yeah, and that's sure. right. Because the mistake, the mistake yeah. he made was to talk to the devil. Uh, right. So a, a principle in my book is follow the sacredness, and around it you'll find a ring of motivated ignorance. And <laughs> evolution is a really contested issue. It's in place front and center in, in Chris's book. And there are some quacks out there who claim to be scientists. You know, he is not a respected scientist. No. So you, you basically committed treason by even just talking to him. Oh. You have to know where the fault lines are, where the third rails are, and you touched one. Wait a second, but I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question. No, let's, let's, let's play this out in real time. I have a rule on my show. We don't have climate denialists on my show. We just don't do it. I'm interested in lots of exchange on a lot of issues, as I think the show makes clear. We have people with all sorts of perspectives. We even have Maggie Gallagher on, who is a strong mm -hmm. opponent of marriage equality, and there's some people who didn't like that. But I draw the line, for whatever reason, I draw to climate denialism. And, and, and if I was forced to articulate why I draw the line there, I would say because. A, it's extremely dangerous, right? Because it's undermining this 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 scientific consensus that I think is absolutely necessary to um, us avoiding massive, widespread global immiseration. Uh, and I don't want to have any role in, in fomenting that. Now, there's a certain degree to which that is antithetical to the spirit of free inquiry, right? If you if you caricaturize it as talking the devil. Mm -hmm. But the thing I want to ask you, John, which I asked you in the break, is like, in, in order for you to have this whole conversation, right, you're putting yourself at this kind of remove, mm -hmm. right? You say, well, you people, they have their sacredness. But the whole point is that everybody's embedded in that same framework, but right? To, to varying degrees. So my whole life, I was a partisan liberal. And I got, I, I switched over from studying cultural variation and morality to political variation in order to help the Democrats, because they kept screwing up. Gore and Kerry had no idea how to connect. So I switched over. I was still part of the team. And in doing the research for the book, I realized, oh my God, conservatives, I'm sort of the Burkean conservatives, the, not the authoritarians, the Burke, the, they're right about a lot of things about how to make a good society. So once I stepped out of the team, and I'm no longer a liberal, I'm now a centrist, um, Sure, I'm part of something. Sure, you I are. Can see, I can think a lot more. No, but see, but this is what drives me crazy. No, this is what drives me crazy. The, the, it's it's the claim to special enlightenment that centrists have that drive me crazy. Because I, no, I'm, 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 I'm totally honest with you. Because the point is that we're all embedded. So when you you will see the Washington Post editorial page or, or Thomas Friedman or all sorts of bien pensant, uh, you know, thinkers of of, 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 of centrism. And the, the fact of the matter is that is as ideologically binding and as sort of no, team oriented as as. No, it's a matter of degree. You're right that nobody is fully objective, but it's a matter of degree. And if you are on the floor, if you're a congressman, I mean, you are now you're fighting sure. every day. You yes. cannot think clearly. Right, right, right. Right. academic? who is less liberal than before, sure, I'm not objective, but I'm more objective than I was five years ago. But there's, are you there's an impulse among centrists. A lot of them are psychologically liberal. They want to be yeah. different. They want to get noticed. There's, oh, hey, over here. And so then I'll attack my own. And so right. there's actually a lot of that going on. These people are actually probably the kind of people uh, who would naturally be liberal, but they also want a distinction. I'm not saying that about you, but I'm saying that there's a lot of it's that true, going on. Okay, well, it's best, true. The best, you can, the best you can find, because it's very hard to find. Well, gas lines are valuable up to a point, but then at some point it becomes its own. Well, here's my question. Here's my question for you. There's a lot of that out there. For you and for John as people, because then the question is, the big question and, the, and the, the huge question that, 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 that pertains to both the work that we do here and, and whether we're going to solve global climate change and the possibility of moral transformation and moral revolution, which is something that Kwame Anthony Appiah has written about, very, I think, very well, is how can people change, right? I mean, what is the process? And John, you're someone who I think has had real changes, real evolution in your thoughts, particularly, I think, even just institutionally in the... Okay, so let's try to go beyond this enlightenment perspective. Let's look back to philosopher Ronnie Goodman's work in progress, conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia. So people like those in this TV discussion on MSNBC, part of the liberal elite, they believe they stand above a retrograde conservatism. They believe that their enlightenment ideals liberate them from the various hero systems to which conservatives remain beholden. But they don't understand 
that their own liberal left enlightened perspective is just another hero system, right? Hero systems are systems of social meaning, all right? Liberals see conservatives as compromised by some kind of primitive attraction to the relics of benighted pre-modernity. Now, the conservative perspective is that liberalism is itself a hero system in disguise, a subjective hero system that stays concealed behind this secular facade of enlightenment, pragmatism, and utilitarianism. So liberals see themselves as just promoting flourishing, right? promoting ordinary human fulfillment, shorn of any higher metaphysical aspirations. But conservatives see that liberalism is itself a religious impulse right, stemming from Protestantism and a spiritual ideal that now plays itself out through the medium of these ostensibly secular goals. So liberalism is a hero system that fills itself and disguises itself as the transcendence of all hero systems. So what was the Enlightenment all about? Part of it was a great belief in the power of reason. And as I keep saying, I see reason as a weak read compared to the power of genetics and the power of incentives and the power of imprinting. Another key part of the Enlightenment is a belief that people are basically good, right? All right-wing perspectives on the world begin with the assumption that people are not basically good. Pretty much all left-wing perspectives on the world begin with the assumption that people are basically good. Teams you were associated with, you were identified as a conservative, you had, you know, were at a conservative think tank, and now I don't think identifying those terms anymore are not institutionally affiliated with that team. And my question is, what, what hope is there for the process of that kind of change if the kind of psychological mechanisms you're writing about are there? You have to approach it indirectly. You're not going to reason people uh, into, into agreement or even into discussion. Do the part about Dale Carnegie. <laughs> I think it's a very important You argument. can't reason people if you push their mo right, yeah. most important right, 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 right. what, what you have to do is you have to try to foster relationships. So as, you know, as, as Beach said, you know, we, relationships open our minds and open our hearts. This is the Reverend we just talked to, Jasmine Bishwara, right. who's making that point. So, for point. example, there's a group uh, called livingroomconversations.org, and they try to, you get a, a liberal and a conservative who are friends, who know each other, there are still some out there, pairs, you get them to have a dinner party, you bring people together, and it's, it's important to share food. So if you do indirect methods, you take advantage of our, 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 the social judgments come first, then the reasoning comes after. If we want to reach agreement, it's going to be by bringing people together in good circumstances. Uh, and the chat says, didn't Freud usher in the idea to moderns that man still does not act uh, rationally? I, I think that was an argument that Freud made. Isn't uh, Freud the basis of all modern market research? No. I don't know a lot of things about modern market research. I can assure you that uh, Freudian theorizing is not the basis of all modern market uh, research. So let me go back here to Ronnie Goldman's decoding on conservative claims of cultural oppression. So Liberals understand modernity as separated from pre-modernity by the Enlightenment, which launched in the 17th and 18th century, that uh, we've moved through different civilizations. So the pre-modern, pre-Enlightenment Europeans are not just ignorant and superstitious, right? They were much more animal-like, according to this perspective. They were given to a kind of spontaneity and emotion that would be considered abnormal today. Right. They believed in sacred and profane spiritual forces all around them, so they didn't believe in the Buffett identity. They believed in the porous identity, meaning that these spiritual forces, either for good or for ill, you know, angels and demons all around them, could have a profound effect on their life. So from a modern perspective, these pre-moderns were ignorant and unruly. They lacked the inhibitions that we now associate with civilization, and they didn't have a clear sense of boundaries between the mind and the body. And the enlightened modern liberal 
right, sees that uh, we can make our own way through the power of religion and uh, through the power of reason, that uh, reasons become the new religion. And so we can even change our sex. We're not limited to the biology of the sex that we were born into. So from a liberal perspective, we can use reason to gain self-possession, self-control, and self-transparency. We can liberate ourselves from the illusions of the past. But this self-congratulatory enlightenment narrative conceals a darker story where liberals use molding and coercion and bullying and power to force their hero system on everybody else. So liberals believe they're holding up autonomous self-possession, but really this is just the internalizing of the new restraints and inhibitions of this new secular religion. Right. Liberals see reason as something that we can just choose, as something predominantly conscious and disembodied, right? operating effectively without respect to our body. And this leaves them insensible to the layer of human experience that resides in the body, that resides in our ways of, of being, that uh, occur prior to us developing reasoning. So liberals are dramatically overconfident of their ability to recognize and overcome oppression and inequality. Uh, where they can actually open their minds. And also realizing that people are not convinced when they feel attacked. And right. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People sounds a little corny now, but actually it's very, it, it's very useful today if you get past the slightly archaic language in that you talk to people, you try to figure out what's going on in their minds. Imagine. Do I find talking to most women boring? Uh, I mean, no more than I find talking to most men. I mean, I really enjoy my opportunities just to be around only men, but I enjoy most of my interactions with women in my life as well. Luke needs to stay out of the Chris Hayes zone. Latest Steve Saylor post on narrative collision. Is it too hot for YouTube? Yeah, let's go to the latest Steve Saylor post was excellent. I put it on my list of things to talk about. All right, we've got a Muslim arrested in Brooklyn for murdering a gay black man. How three different news outlets covered the story. So we've got this trend, Middle East immigrants to the U.S., mostly Muslims, but also Armenians, objecting to the establishment pushing the gay and trans agenda. Sometimes these immigrants do this admirably through the parents' rights movement. Sometimes they do it despicably through street violence. So for the mainstream media pushing the Democratic Party line, this immigrant versus LGBTQ stuff is tricky because it raises questions about the inherent tensions in the democratic coalition of the fringes grand strategy. So on the other hand, a gay was murdered in a hate crime, a black gay. So the story is too unnarrative to not push it heavily. But the stabber is a Muslim teen whose friends objected to the gay display as offensive to Islam. So that is off narrative. Now, the usual media hope is that the stabber must be some kind of Archie Bunker character, and you hope the public doesn't pry too much into the facts. So we've got the Daily Mail, a frequent purveyor of facts, and we've got the New York Times and the Washington Post, and how do they handle the story? So the Daily Mail says dancer O'Shea Sibley shown voguing at a Brooklyn gas station before being stabbed to death by a 17-year-old Muslim suspect in anti-gay hate crime. So that's how the Daily Mail begins it, all right? They put the fact that Stabber is a Muslim in the headline. In the New York Times, they try to bury the role of Islam 
down into the 11th paragraph and then immediately wish it away by saying this has nothing to do with you know, true Islam. And in the Washington Post, today, 19th paragraph article on the arrest of the Muslim youth that goes on and on about anti-gay hate crimes, yet never mentions a single thing about the killer being a Muslim. Right, this is uh, Chris Mooney talking about the Republican brand. Three months now. Uh, there is no serious scientific criticism of anything that I've said. Okay? It's just politically controversial, but scientifically it's actually not. Uh, and in it, I cite a large body of scientific research. And I've tweeted twice today, uh, using the hashtags, you should be able to find it, a link to a bunch of papers from my blog where you can go and start to read some of the science yourself. I mean, if you're interested in this stuff, you're free-thinking, critically-thinking people, I know you are. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go read the published, peer-reviewed research on the differences between liberals and conservatives yourself. And I only listed 11 genetic studies and 8 brain uh, and physiological studies. It's just a tiny bit of what's actually out there because the, the most studies are in psychology, not in genetics, not in, not in neuroscience. They're in psychology. I didn't even list those. But anyway, it can just get you started reading this stuff so you can know it's real. It's not made up. The scientists did it. It's not my fault. It's their fault. All right? The upshot is that I used to really, really misunderstand the people who disagree with me. I did not get what makes them tick. And in fact, as a liberal, I'm a moderate liberal. I'm not as liberal as, as some. But as a liberal, I used to think what a lot of liberals think about their opponents. I thought that the reason they were coming at it differently than I was was that either they were driven by religion, on the one hand, or they were driven by money and self-interest. On the other hand, so if you wanted to understand why conservatives are acting the way they do, you'd either do this old journalistic trick called follow the money. In other words, figure out who's funding them. Is it ExxonMobil? Is it the Koch brothers? What have you. Or follow the religion, which is kind of the same thing. Figure out what the religious rights role in this is. And there's often big money actually supporting the religious right as well. And that was sort of the approach taken in my 2005, my first book. It was called The Republican War on Science. And it played a kind of central role in defining this whole idea that there's a unique right-wing problem with science, with, with fact. All right, so I want to start the story there because I've learned a lot since then. It's not the Republican war on science was wrong, but its analysis was sort of incomplete. Okay, so we'll go back to 2005. Okay, so Ronnie Goodman takes a few shots at uh, this book and the dominant uh, you know, Enlightenment liberal perspective. So to be on the Biden left, all right, you don't recognize meaning as something that primarily exists outside of yourself, such as in religion or in community or in nation, right? You believe that meaning is something that we can create just in our own heads, right? So people in a traditional perspective or a conservative perspective, we see meaning as something that primarily occurs through our interactions with people outside of ourselves, that there is meaning in the world outside of us. The liberal left perspective is that meaning is something we just create in our heads. Right, so you've got the dominant modern perspective, could be called enlightenment naturalism, right? Moral legitimacy just uh, refers to empirical evidence about the human condition. Now, conservatives assign a much deeper meaning to human anatomy. And so from a liberal left perspective, they are engaging in an ancient temptation. They are surrendering to the power of biology and they are attributing to sexual anatomy a significance that it does not truly have. Whatever anatomy people are born with, they can transcend through the power of their reason and their choice, all right? So people on the liberal left have a much greater ability in a belief in the ability of individuals through the power of reason 
to create strategic autonomous lives where they can transcend their biology or any other shortcoming. And so liberals see the prejudice against trans by conservatives as a failure of enlightenment and a symptom of some kind of irrational hatred and a symbol of prejudice. That uh, people on the right have failed to transcend their ordinary embodied perceptions. They haven't reached that highest state of spiritual purity and freedom, haven't adopted the sort of emotional asceticism that enables this kind of transcendence. So liberals believe that there should be this kind of transcendence of the body as well in history. Historian Rick Perlstein argues liberalism is rooted in this notion of the enlightenment, that we can use our reason and we can use the facts that our reason accumulates and we can sort out what is true and we can use the scientific method to arrive at a consensus view of what is true, right? While the right-wing view of truth is based on tribal identification and myths and hero systems. Well, the conservative critique of this is that the liberal perspective is also a subjective hero system. So people on the left love the Galileo story, that Galileo was persecuted by the church. But in reality, the Galileo story is far less dramatic than the liberal myth, right? It's much more in accord with what is happening today. Right? Galileo's suffering was because of rivalry, jealousy, and vindictiveness from other scientists and philosophers which is frequently the lot of people in modern times. So anyone who believes that inquisitions went out with the triumph of secularism over religion, not paid attention to the records of foundations, research agencies, professional societies, and academic institutions and departments. So people on the right and the left, they want to make cognitive and ideological culture wars, but they are really a clash of conflicting subjective hero systems. Right? And we, we develop a hero system usually from our community. Right? It's, it's largely unstructured. It's usually not articulated explicitly, but it just shows up in our lives. It's, it's the background against which we act. It's the meaning outside of ourselves against which we measure ourselves. So people on the liberal left, they want to adjudicate between liberalism and conservatism on the basis of ideas, on the basis of epistemics, in terms of agreements and disagreements about what is true and what makes sense. But the clash is really one that goes much deeper to our very bodies and to the way that we approach the world, which from a traditional conservative perspective is we encounter the world primarily not as individuals, not as strategic, autonomous, buffered, reflexive individuals, but as members of tribes, as members of communities and that we receive cues about the subjective hero systems that we subscribe to from the people around us, from our tribe and community. So conservatives have not internalized this buffered, distant, reflexive, you know, reason-based, autonomous understanding of the human being. Right, people on the right see humans not primarily as individuals, but as members of, of tribes, and that we get meaning from our connection with our tribe. So for those who control the cultural means of production, conservatives have effectively been judged unfit for life off the reservation, unable to function in a truly human environment because they have not internalized the inner ordering impulses of the liberal, autonomous, strategic, buffered identity, which is now considered 
what it means to be properly civilized. So from a liberal left perspective, conservatives are seen as coarse and squalid animals and peasants. They are outsiders who must be denied entry to the courtly halls of liberalism with all its false airs and empty refinements. Here's the book. And at the outset, I'd like to disclose to all my audiences, we're not trying to echo the cover image of another popular book. It was out at the same time. So we, you know, we only noticed that later. The, the argument of my book <laughs> was more complex. And <laughs> in it, what I, what I claimed was that under the administration of George W. Bush, our last president, scientific knowledge was under attack uh, on global warming, on stem cell research, on evolution, and on and on and on. I think if you want to kind of capture the ethos of the George W. Bush era, uh, then I think it's pretty well captured in a quotation that he gave, actually, to a reporter following the, the 2004 devastating tsunami killed so many people in uh, Pacific Rim countries and uh, the Indian Ocean area. Everybody remembers the Christmas tsunami of 2004 and the just terrible disaster. And Bush was giving a press conference, and a journalist asked him a sort of scientific question. Uh, and the question was, Mr. President, does the United States have a warning system in place to protect us from tsunamis you know, here at home? And Bush had no earthly idea whether we did or not. He was completely clueless. But he tried to answer. He sort of hemmed and hawed. And he finally started to say something scientific in response. He started to say, well, you know, I think we might be less vulnerable than other parts of the world to tsunamis. But then, as he quickly added, I am not a geologist, as you know. And I think that sort of is the Bush administration on science in sort of a nutshell. So things... Okay, so people on the liberal left, they want to contest things on the basis, essentially, of epistemology. And they will look at right-wing claims as epistemology epistemologically deficient, right? But these claims constitute a countercultural assault against the liberal lens. It's an effort to articulate what lies underneath this epistemological fragment of man, reveal the latter as a derivation upon something much more primordial, which cannot be primarily understood in epistemological terms. This is the subjective hero system that we all have, right? The cosmological orientation is a fancier word for hero system. So liberals cannot understand conservative claims of cultural oppression because the very structure of their liberal identity inures them to this human constant and that conservatives are defending one hero system against another, resisting the disciplines and repressions of the liberal buffered identity in favor of an earlier, more pre-modern form of consciousness that sees the world as a more magical and enchanted place. Another key part of the conservative worldview is much more ease with a homogeneous culture. Right. Pre-modern cultures were homogeneous. Traditionalists are much more at ease with the ideas of homogeneous cultures. Modern people tend to prefer pluralism. So in ancient culture, right, the, the moral and the spiritual were seen as just as real as stones, rivers, and mountains. Right? People didn't lead abstract, intellectualized lives. All right? So that uh, the, the fetus was, was a living baby, all right, was just seen as obviously true. So conservatives reject the kind of edited speech, the expressive moderation, the intellectualizing of life by liberals. Right, liberals see themselves as neutral. They see their prescriptions as coming logically from the perspective of the strategic, autonomous, reflexive identity. Right? They, they see themselves purged of anthropocentric contamination. They see themselves as purged from traditional religious contamination. So enlightenment believes people are basically good, that people can transform themselves to become autonomous through the power of reason. And so 
liberals tend to attack those parts of human nature that don't sit easily with this preferred basket of liberal values that uh, stands in the way of this ethos of disengaged self-control and self-reflexivity, meaning constantly monitoring yourself. So liberalism has the agenda to transform people into good universalist discipline to uproot every last trace of aggression and insensitivity, replace this with enlightenment, awareness, and altruism. So there was an incident at Vassar College where the assistant dean of students ventured that several male students had just been exonerated of false accusations of rape, not the worse off for their ideal, because the ideal had offered them an opportunity for self-exploration that they would otherwise not have had. So the false accusations were redeemed by the self-exploration they facilitated. So you see a feminism here that stands in opposition not just to rape, but everything in human nature that might possibly precipitate rape, such as human beings not being basically good, that uh, men have higher testosterone levels than women, that men are much more aggressive, including sexually aggressive than women. They want to reject that. So this dean thought it would have been great if these students would have taken this opportunity to expose and extirpate any last impulse that they had towards natural, primeval, ape-like behavior. So liberals don't believe in the code of the gentleman, right? They, they don't generally believe in getting our moral code from religion or tradition, right? They think it's something that we should be after reason toward uh, taking direction from you know, our, our best and brightest, those who went to Harvard and the like, right? They believe that we can elevate ourselves through this transformative power of reason. The non-liberal believes that we are embedded in in bodies that lust, that uh, have a will for power and aggression, that uh, people are not basically good and cannot be transformed for the good just by the power of reason. Things under Bush were bad when it, when it comes to science. Uh, and this is what I was writing about, and it was a bestseller, and it drew a lot of attention, sent me out on the road to talk about it, and I was explaining why. I was explaining why science was so messed up under Bush. And the kind of story I was telling was a story that I would describe as being political in nature and being environmental in nature. In other words, I was doing what a political journalist often does. Right? And political just means I was following money, you know, the money trail. Environmental, I don't... Okay, so this is how Ronnie Goodman describes Chris Mooney's book, The Republican Brain, an intriguing physiological explanation for why conservatives are less disposed than liberals towards this kind of buffered, expressive moderation. So he says, MRI studies reveal that conservatives tend to have a larger right amygdala which is the evolutionarily more ancient part of the brain that tends to generate immediate fight or flight responses to threatening stimuli, and that liberals tend to possess more gray matter in the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, which is a newer part of our evolutionary system that suspends automatic responses to assess facts and to detect errors. So he argues that conservatives tend to be more instinctive and given to immediate reflex actions, that liberals are more reflective and cognitive, that they are better able to suspend automatic fear responses to undertake a more careful evaluation of facts. So the ideology of conservatives comes from their physiology. Every human, like every animal, possesses a fear system capable of rapid-fire defensive reactions, but that system appears to be stronger and more predominant among conservatives. So when people are offered alcohol, for example, alcohol shifts us to the right politically. 
right? It correlates with more expression of right-wing views, even among self-described liberals. The people's cognitive architecture, perhaps more consistent with conservative ideology, that is the way our brains are built. So conservatism may well represent the more natural human and animal state, which tends to get more suppressed among liberals. So the disinhibiting effects of alcohol temporarily reset liberals closer to the default setting, which evolutionarily older rapid-fire reactions you know, overwhelm the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex. So tough on crime, strongly pro-military conservatives have a more pronounced startle reflex. They exhibit greater skin conductance, right? Uh, nervous system arousal when shown threatening images, say, of maggots or a large spider. People with measurably lower physical sensitivities to sudden noise and threatening visible images were more likely to support left-wing policies. I don't mean, you know, in the sense of writing about clean air and clean water. I mean, I was attributing what Republicans were doing with science not to something inherent about who they are. In other words, their nature, their core being, their, you know, their identity. I was rather attributing it to the political environment in which all of this happens, in which they have to get ahead or, get, or fall behind their political opponents. Uh, in other words, the bad behavior with respect to science, I was claiming, was emerging from the political ecosystem that existed in the way politics existed. And so I would say, you know, this is a conservative movement that's grown up over the past several decades. It grew up for particular historical reasons. Uh, it came to encompass the religious right, but also corporate interests. And once that became what the movement was and how it was constituted, politicians, in order to get elected, had to appeal to those interests. They had to appeal to the religious right. They had to appeal to the big Exxon nobles of the world. Okay? And those groups didn't like science. So of course Republican politicians said what those groups wanted them to say, and voila, you have the Bush administration and all of its anti-science behavior, this storm of science abuse and denial. That was the argument then. All right? Okay, so Chris Mooney makes the case that uh, Republican or conservative reactions are much more instinctual, while those of people on the left are much more considered. And so because conservatives are incentivized to follow their followers' motivated cognition, all right, it's rarer among conservatives who have pro-authority biases to you know, pick on their own. The conservatives tend to be more unified and supportive of their political team. Conservatives are less willing to pick a fight with their friends, less likely to issue a corrective when they need to issue one, less motivated to step out of rank and call out bogus assertions. By contrast, he argues liberals care little for obedience and group solidarity because they are children of the Enlightenment. They don't bow to authority or pledge allegiance to the team. So this is why liberals remain allied with scientists who aren't just going to put up with any nonsense in their fields of expertise. Now, liberals and scientists are usually on the same side of the issues because liberals have an open personality with its curiosity, tolerance, and flexibility, and that naturally disposes them toward the scientific method compelling a respect for scientists that is less common among conservatives. Conservatives routinely dismiss science and expertise, but it's hard physiologically for liberals to buck what scientists say and to withstand the intellectual beating that is sure to follow if they do. Conservatives have comparatively closed personalities, and so that lands them in overwhelming conflict with the conclusions of modern science on a wide range of issues. This is why there's a wide expertise gap between liberals and conservatives in the modern world. And to try to close this gap, conservatives now foster their own counter-expertise to thwart mainstream knowledge. The conservatives have seceded from the common reality occupied by liberals and independents. They now have their own truth, their own experts to spout it, their own communication channels, their own newspapers, cable networks, talk radio shows, blogs, encyclopedias, think tanks, even universities. 
and they all operate in the service of the belief, affirmation, ideological activation that drives conservatives, which is all about essentially legitimating the promptings of their amygdalas as rational responses to bedrock truth. Liberals have their own neurologically driven physiological needs to satisfy, but these include the need for cognition, the need for accuracy, the need to distinguish oneself from others and to stand out to be unique rather than part of the herd. So liberals are attached to their core values emotionally. These values just happen to include the Enlightenment belief that if you can't get the facts right, you can't solve the problem and make the world better. Enlightenment convictions have also kept liberals from truly understanding conservatives. Was that account wrong? My answer is incomplete. The basic story has clearly got something going for it. Because this is a recent study that came out in the American Sociological Review in which a guy named Gordon Goshot actually tried to test the Republican war on science hypothesis scientifically. And it was, it's really great as a journalist to see someone say, you know, we set out to test the hypothesis of Mooney 2005. All right, so it's like, oh, I'm in the literature. Uh, and what he found was that if you look at people's trust in institutions in America, uh, one of the institutions is science. All right, and the trust in institutions has been declining across the board. But trust in science has been declining much more among conservatives, the red line, than it has been declining among liberals or among moderates, the other two lines. So Goshot said Mooney was right. This is a unique conservative phenomenon. And then he went on to give an environmental account, just of the sort that I've described. Uh, but he did this even as I was starting to question whether that was really the right reason. I mean, definitely conservatives have a problem with science. But is, is it just this historical, political story, or is it something deeper than that? The problem is that the environmental story ignores the psychology of politics, what we know about the psychology of people who are conservative versus liberal. And we know a lot about it. And over time, I began to suspect, as I was watching more and more attacks on science coming from the right and how conservatives behave, that we needed to pull in that component of the story. Uh, so let me tell you how I started to realize that this was important. I became... Okay, that's going to do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.